The following is a conversation with Jack Barsky, a former KGB spy, author of Deep Undercover, and the subject of an excellent podcast series called The Agent. There are very few people who have defected from the KGB and live to tell the story. It is one of the most powerful intelligence organizations in history. And this conversation gives a window into its operation, both from an ideological and psychological perspectives. But also, it tells the story of a man who lived one heck of an incredible life. And now, a quick few second mention of each sponsor. Check them out in the description. It's the best way to support this podcast. We got Inside Tracker for longevity, Notion for startups, BetterHelp for mental health, Blinkist for nonfiction, and Athletic Greens for performance. Choose wisely, my friends. And now, onto the full ad reads. As always, no ads in the middle. I try to make these interesting, but if you skip them, please still check out our sponsors. I enjoy their stuff. Maybe you will too. This show is brought to you by Inside Tracker, a service I use to track biological data. They use machine learning algorithms to analyze data that comes from your body, your blood, DNA, fitness tracker data, all that kind of stuff. It's obvious that those kinds of decisions should be based on data that comes from your body. I hope one day we'll have the measurement and the collection of that data that's perfectly protected in terms of privacy and controlled by the individual, collected regularly coming from the body and coming from actually the brain. So electrical, mechanical, and chemical signals, all of that collected and organized nicely for you to own and store locally. And based on that data, be able to make decisions more effectively. Anyway, you can go to insidetracker.com slash Lex for a limited time to get special savings just for being a listener of this very podcast. And you and I can learn more about ourselves by collecting more of our actual biological data from our own body. This show is also brought to you by Notion, a note-taking and team collaboration tool. It combines note-taking, document sharing, wikis, project management, and much more into one space that's simple, powerful, and beautifully designed. In terms of when I talk to people that really care about productivity, really love being at the cutting edge, Notion is what a lot of people recommend. I still use Emacs for uh, a lot of my sort of ID type work. It's my fallback for very basic stuff and for programming, but when I want to do organized, rigorous, large-scale note-taking, that's what I use as Notion. But they also want you to know that it's not just for note-taking, it's also for collaboration. So it can be a full-on, what they're calling, operating system for running every aspect of your startup. They're uh, doing a special offer for startups. You can get up to $1,000 off the team plan, which is almost one year free for a team of 10. Go to notion.com slash startups. This episode is also brought to you by BetterHelp, spelled H-E-L-P, help. They figure out what you need and match you with a licensed professional therapist in under 48 hours. It's kind of amazing how much improvement you can do if you just surface the stuff that's in the shadows, in the darkness, if you bring it to the surface through conversation. I think that's how you dig at the subconscious mind, is by speaking about the darker aspects of your past. I think as long as you start talking about it, you kind of start pulling a thread 
and then you might be surprised of what you pull out. And as you start pulling it out, you realize that there's a lot more there and you bring it to light and that's how you let it go. Through just talking, you can do that kind of thing. And uh, BetterHelp is just the way to do it super easy. Online, it's private, affordable, available worldwide. Check them out at betterhelp.com slash Lex and save on your first month. This show is also brought to you by Blinkist, my favorite app for learning new things. They take key ideas from thousands of nonfiction books and condense them down into just 15 minutes that you can read or listen to. I can recommend a lot of nonfiction books that I return to over and over and over on there. It's basically the best nonfiction books ever written are all on there. Sapiens, Meditations by Marcus Aurelius, Beginning of Infinity by David Deutsch. Beginning of Infinity is like the defining book of what makes a good book. And in general, it's just a good way to get key aspects of a nonfiction book to decide if you wanna read further. I don't think, it's not like a spoiler alert thing. It's not like full of spoilers because nonfiction books, you can read, reread, you can dig, you can jump around and you still get the depth of what the book is about without spoiling anything. It's not like a fiction book. So as a listener of this podcast, you can claim a special offer for savings at Blinkist.com slash Lex. This show is also brought to you by Athletic Greens and the AG1 drink, which is an all-in-one daily drink to support better health and peak performance. And when they say daily drink, that's probably what a lot of people drink it is every day, once a day, but I drink it every day twice a day. I love the way it tastes. I love the way it makes me feel. It also gives a nutritional base for all the wild mental and physical stuff I do. Exercise, running in the crazy Austin summer heat or fasting, not eating 24 hours or more, all that kind of stuff. I can count on Athletic Greens to save my butt from uh, any unhealthy things I might get myself into and not realize it. It's just also a source of happiness for me. It's a place I return to, to remind myself that at least in some aspects of my life, I have it together. They'll give you one month supply of fish oil when you sign up at athleticgreens.com slash Lex. This is the Lex Friedman podcast. To support it, please check out our sponsors in the description. And now, dear friends, here's Jack Barsky. Let's start with a big basic question. What is the KGB? Комитет государственной безопасности. Right. So that is the Committee of uh, State Security. Yeah, this is a opasnost is a, a threat, right? Threat. Okay, and BS so, means is without. Right. <laughs> and I guess that directly translates to security without threat. So and don't don't exist anymore. It was disbanded when the Soviet Union fell apart and uh, the successor uh, agencies were are now the SVR and and the uh, FSB, FSB supposedly the equivalent to the FBI and SVR the CIA, but uh, the SVR is is relatively weak, and the FSB has has uh, taken on a lot of espionage and um, you know active measures, and they're much bigger and stronger, but the most capable intelligence agency in, in Russia is the is the GRU. Military intelligence. Then 
nobody knows very much about. That's right. I When I was in the KGB, I had no idea that there was military intelligence. Nobody ever mentioned anything like that. And uh, by the way, I recently had a, uh, the pleasure to uh, give a talk at the DIA. When they reached out to me, I didn't know they existed either. Interesting. Yeah, that that's always the question. If you want to be an intelligence agency, should the world know anything about you? Because in some sense, you want to create the legend in order to attract uh, great, competent individuals to work for you. But at the same time, you want it to be shrouded in complete mystery. If, if nobody knows you exist, you might that's be right. able to operate well as an as an intelligence agency that's that that is fascinating but fsb is the thing that carries the flag right of uh, of kgb kgb being probably one of if not the most sort of infamous famous infamous and powerful intelligence agencies in ever, history yes ever absolutely 100 percent. it was founded in 1954 after the death of stalin you've uh in writing your book looked back at the predecessors, at the history. Right. Is there some way in which the KGB is grounded in um, the culture, the spirit, the soul of its predecessors? Oh, absolutely. They just changed names and they changed uh, uh, personnel rather frequently. And that had, had something to do with uh, Stalin's paranoia. From between 1923, and I don't remember what, uh, I think it may have been the NKVD at that time. It started as a Chika, and then it became the the GPU, the... Uh, it's three or four letter NKVD, words. yes. Uh, but <laughs> but with those name changes, you also had changes at the top. Between 1923 and 1953, when Stalin died, that is uh, 30 years, they had eight heads of uh, intelligence and of of those eight, six were executed when they were replaced. So that's an um, that's an indication that uh, you know this was an, an organization that ate itself from the inside. The Soviet Union was the only dictatorship in history that did not rest its powers on the military; they rested its powers on the intelligence apparatus, and that thing was unstable. So you know where that leads. Eventually, if you rest your, your power on something that is made out of bricks that don't hold a lot of load, it will it will fall apart. On sand. Yeah. Why was it unstable, would you say? What what of human nature oh, the, the makes it unstable? It's, it's the paranoia. It's, uh, you know, Stalin w was always worried about, uh, you know, what, the, the more, most powerful people coming after him. So he proactively killed off heads of the KGB, and uh, and he had this great purge where he got rid of a lot of his generals, you know, really capable generals. Uh, and uh, that that cost him dearly when World War II started because, you know, he, he started off with, uh, with a, uh, a force that wasn't as capable as it could have been. Uh, was it paranoia at all levels? I believe so. I believe so. It, it comes from the top. And so if the top doesn't trust you, uh, you always have to worry about um, the, your peers snitching on you. Yeah. Okay? So, so and, and I think we have a very similar situation in Russia today. Uh, and uh, and, and in, this, in, in this kind of atmosphere, um, the truth will never get to the top. So no matter 
what moral rules the organization operates under. Trust is fundamental to its uh, competence. Oh, absolutely. And I want to extend this to my own existence. Um, and this is kind of strange. It, it, it's it's almost dichotomous uh, because, you know, I was running around lying to everybody and, uh, you know, I couldn't fundamentally be trusted. But the relationship that I had with the KGB was based on trust. If they, don't, if they don't trust me, they don't send me out. And if I don't trust them, I'm not going. And I eventually broke that trust. And they knew there was always that danger. They knew that because something about you or just something about human beings? No, there were, be there, were, <laughs> there were hints about, uh, uh, you know, how long my assignment would be, so 10 to 12 years. And you see, it, it makes sense, all right? I, I was becoming an American. And over time, I would become more and more American. And there was always a chance that I liked it more here than there, that, that I was really successful in what I was supposed to do. And it sort of happened, but in my case, it happened because of uh, I fathered a child who, who I didn't want to leave when they wanted me back. So Love always screws up. Oh, uh, your, <laughs> your I, employment I, competence. Yes, you're absolutely right. Um, <laughs> yeah. So, but that, but they thought, you know, that um, I had an anchor at home because I had a wife and a son at home. Which, uh, you know, you got to worry about them uh, if you defect, mm -hmm. uh, because in the past the KGB was would go after after family ruthlessly, including. Perhaps violence? Yeah. This is a hard question about the KGB because it's one of the most ruthless organizations, but in general, um, are there lines, KGB agents at every level of the hierarchy uh, that they would not cross? Political, legal, ethical, or does anything goes to achieve the goal? I was only... Uh... Uh, in touch with uh, two types of agents, as well the the technical experts, the ones that taught me tradecraft, uh, and they were like engineers, and uh, you know they were in charge of the secret writing and the uh, uh, the, the, the Morse code, shortwave radio reception, uh, decryption, encryption, and that kind of stuff. Um, those were just doing their job, all right. Uh, and the others, the ones that trained me, that uh, prepared me for life in the United States, they were nice people. They were elegant people. Uh, I I don't think they they would not uh, um, uh, fit into the stereotype of the ruthless gun-carrying agent. Is it possible that you would not be aware of the parts of the KGB I mean, it's very modular. Would you? Yeah, it's possible uh, that you're not aware of the parts of the KGB that that are the quote unquote muscle. Oh, I didn't know. I would find out afterwards after I you know retired and and started doing some research. I had no clue. So uh, you're kind of operating in a bubble. Oh, yeah, very much so. I mean, this is what the KGB did really, really well: compartmentalization, uh, and and that uh, was based on. You know, the communist movement, while it was still underground, you know, the, the cells were very small, and the, so that maybe there were three, four members in one cell that knew one another, and then they had a liaison to another cell. So with the, the bottom line is if, if you got one, one of those folks were caught, uh, 
they could maybe betray four people or three, something like that. And and the KGB continued with that tradition. Uh, I have reason to believe that the my handler, the person in Moscow that sort of uh, directed me and made decisions uh, what, what to do and where to go, never met me personally. There's no reason to, right? Why would so? Uh, and and this this uh, actually. Uh, was a big advantage uh, over other intelligence services because, you know, you look at what the CIA does, everybody blabs. There's a lot of leaks coming out of American intelligence. I don't think there's as many leaks coming out of uh, the Mossad. Strong words from Jack Barsky, by the way. <laughs> so, I mean, that is a question I want to ask a little more systematically. Is there something unique about the KGB compared to the other intelligence agencies? Let's Let's talk... Uh, the British intelligence, MI6, Mossad, CIA. Is there unique cultures, spirits, souls of the different organizations that maybe somehow connect to the structures of government, connect maybe the the values of the people, those kinds of things? I believe we were all pretty much uh, uh, strong uh, believers in communism and the future of the world being... In KGB. Yes, I think that that unified us uh, to to a large degree, even the technicians. So even it wasn't something like, yeah, yeah, the the parents believe this thing, but we know the truth. You really believe the story of communism. Absolutely the did, and, it, and you need to look at the, the time frame. Uh, the Soviet Union, uh, after World War II, made uh, quite a bit of progress in... Uh, uh, Influencing the third world. I still remember uh, in when I was in middle school, we had a map, the map of the world, and it was color-coded. So red was communism. That was the Soviet Union and, and the, the eastern states. And then blue was uh, capitalism. And then, <laughs> then we had green, which were the third world countries. And the green slowly turned pink because a lot of third world uh, governments, like I'm looking at uh, Angola, yeah. I'm, I'm looking at uh, um, Vietnam. You, you, the, a lot of these countries uh, were uh, very sympathetic to, to uh, the Soviet Union. And so we sort of knew that this would go on like that and eventually we would take over and, and you know, pretty much uh, uh, overtake that was that, that was uh, the the myth overtake the United States, not only militarily but also in, in terms of industrial production and and so forth. Now that that was a stupid pipe dream. The military, it was a standoff, as we know. Well, uh, stupid pipe dream. Um, Hitler had a stupid pipe dream. Yeah, that he executed it exceptionally effectively and on, if not for uh, a handful of military mistakes, the world could look very different today. Well, the biggest one being invading the Soviet Union, particularly at the time that he did it, because he ran into the same thing that, uh, that Napoleon ran into, General Winter. Well, within, so Operation Barbarossa, within that, he could have made different decisions yeah, for example, uh, attacking, skipping Kiev and attacking Moscow directly, overthrowing yep. the government. So marching, I guess that that would be learning the lessons from Napoleon as opposed to, um, as opposed to a different kind of distribution of forces and then getting bogged down in the winter. But the point is, these ambitions sometimes do 
uh, you know, the ambitions of empires sometimes do materialize in the growth and the building and the establishment of those empires. And those empires write the history books as, in such a way that we don't think of them as as empires, or we certainly don't think of them as the bad guys. They write the history books, therefore they're the good guys. And right now, America has effectively written the book about the good guys. I happen to believe that book, but it's we should be humbled and open-minded to realize that uh, that is in fact what is happening, is effective empires write the history books and tell us stories and tell us propaganda and tell us narratives that we believe because we are human beings and we love to get together and believe ideas. We love to dream of a beautiful world and try to build that beautiful world together. In the United States, that's a beautiful world, the freedom of uh, respect of human rights, of uh, all men are created equal. Yes. Uh, pursuit of happiness. You know, it always sounds good. If you look at what the, the dream of communism is, it sure as heck, uh, in its words, on the surface, sounds good. Yes. Respect for the workers. Yes the working class, the lower classes mm. that have been trodden on, that have been stolen from by the powerful. They deserve to have the money, the power, the respect that they have earned through their hard work. Sounds great. And everybody gets along and we just have to, you know, uh, all men are wonderful people. And if they, if they go bad, it has something to do with the fact that they have, they have been oppressed, right? And uh, that dream just uh, never worked out. And even even it is when you think about it, and I didn't think about it when you're young. You know, you just emotionally you accept it, but when you think about it, somehow uh, that new wonderful organization has to organize itself. Even though Lenin predicted that the state eventually would go away, well, how does it, how does that work? Then you have like anarchy, right? <clears throat> you have to have an organization. And the only way to really organize a large number of people is with a hierarchy. Mm -hmm. So, and who gets to the top? The the ones that are that want to go to the top, the ones that believe in themselves, the ones the ones that know better than everybody else. And once you have that hierarchy established, uh, there is no guarantee that it doesn't that that it won't go bad. And actually, when you look at uh, history, every such hierarchy has gone bad. You know, you look at Cuba, for instance. I believe Fidel Castro was a an honest revolutionary. I do believe that. And so what did Cuba turn into? Yeah, there's something about, and you speak about Vladimir Putin in this way, but let's step away from that for a second. Is there something about being an honest revolutionary that wants to do good f for their country, and you start to believe that you know better than everyone mm -hmm. else how to do good on the country. Right. And you very well might mm -hmm. first, but then somehow that grows into a, a distortion field where you know you keep believing you know what's right. Yeah. And all the people who disagree with you, you stop seeing them yeah. as having a point. You instead see them as like a, a evil manipulators sure. of the truth that are actually trying to hurt people for their own greed, for their own power, and you will protect the people because you know what's good. In the case of Stalin, I I mean, I don't know, but it seems like he really believed that communism would bring about a much better world. I mean, there was a sense the you have to crack a few eggs to make an omelet. Right. 
this idea that uh, sacrifice is necessary to bring about a, a greater world. And then the other aspect is um, sort of ruling by terror, creating right. terror as right. a justified political mechanism to achieve a better world. So it wasn't, I mean, perhaps he had to do that to be able to sleep at night with the atrocities he's committing. He's, he, I think he believed he will bring about a better yeah. world. And by the way, the terror didn't start with Stalin. It started right after the Bolsheviks took over when uh, uh, Lenin uh, told uh, Mr. Jasinski, Comrade Jasinski, to build the Cheka and then uh, execute the, this is what he called it, the, the Red Terror. So, Red Terror. It, it, so the, at, at, at the birth of the Soviet Union, there was already terror, and it was deliberate. And it uh, it, it also was, It wasn't just focused on the enemies. It was focused on whoever you didn't like. There was, there was no rule of law. There was no uh, there, there, was, there was no no court cases. You know, people were just pulled out of their apartments and shot on sight. Yeah. And the, this was done by revolutionaries who, who were convinced that eventually, you know, that th these sacrifices had to be made and eventually that would lead to a much better planet. And the populace believed this too, that yeah. those sacrifices, in part, yes. I mean, this is such a dark <clears throat> thing about dictatorships is you believe it, but you're also too afraid to question your beliefs. Like, you're not directly afraid, but almost like a... I don't know what that is. That's almost like a subconscious fear. Like don't, there's a dark room with a locked door. Don't look in that door. Don't check that door. And there's something right. about the United States that says, uh, especially modern culture, it's like go to that door first and sort of uh, question everything kind of, uh, that's the power of the freedom of speech and the freedom of the press, but you can get, um, almost become too critical and too cynical of your own culture in that way. So there's, right. there's a balance to strike, of course, right. but man, <clears throat> is, if that's if communism is not a lesson of human nature, I don't know what is, but you believed, without thinking too much about it, you believed right. in, the, in right. the story of, what, what did you see just, you know, I came from the Soviet Union. What did you maybe feel that's right? and good about communism, about the vision of communism. Right. What, do you remember, I, like... I think the biggest impetus in, in, in me believing in communism was that com the communists, when, when just before Hitler took over, the communists were the only force in Germany that fought the Nazis in the streets. And that's a historic truth. Yes. And, and communists were hunted down by the Nazis, killed, uh, put in concentration camps. And so what we knew, when what we were taught, and I think that was a huge unforced error by the Western countries, particularly the United States, that there were ex-Nazis in the government in West Germany. Yeah. And uh, the most famous one was uh, uh, Reinhard Galen, who was in charge, was the general in charge of uh, uh, the uh, intelligence uh, on the Eastern Front under Hitler. And when uh, the uh, the Allied won the war, 
it was decided that Galen was too important uh, with his knowledge of the his his and his organization was too important to uh, to not use. So he was co-opted by the CIA and eventually wound up being the head of the Bundesnachrichtendienst, the CIA of West Germany. That gave us us when I say us, you know, the, the East German party a huge propaganda victory. I wanted to, because here's, uh, the emotional aspect of this was as follows. When we uh, we were in uh, uh, when, uh, juniors in high school, uh, and uh, in, tho in those days, uh, when you, you were only allowed to go to high school if you were in the top 10% of students, okay? So this was going to be the next set of ruling elite in the country. We were sent... We were required to visit a concentration camp, and if you know what what we as as seventeen year olds were made to look at, it was gut wrenching. How can man do something like that to man? Piles of corpses, uh, uh, lampshades made out of human skin because. Uh, they, that skin had tattoos on them and a shrunken head, so heads like the size of my fist. It, I mean, the girls all cried, and it would have made a huge impression. And that was the that was the Nazis, and then yes. the communists. The communists defeated were the Nazi the fighters. Nazi. They were the good guys. Yeah. Of course, you know, in, in hindsight, if the communists had come to power, it would have been just the other way around, as we know. Uh, given the example of Stalin and Mao, right? So, oh, but we didn't know that. Right? From the Russian and the Soviet perspective, uh, the communist regime banded together to win the the Great Patriotic War. And, and that was the, the second one, you know, the big brother, uh, the, the Soviet Union. Uh, I mean, when, when I was approached by the KGB, that was like, oh, I, I felt so honored. Yeah. <laughs> So we should say um, that we're talking about East Germany, that you're yeah. from East Germany. Can you describe, you were born four years and, what is it? Yeah, four uh, years. Ten days? Yeah, sort of, very good. <laughs> After uh, World Germany's War II. Yeah. Um, unconditional surrender in, in World War II. So what is East Germany, what is West Germany, what is East and West Germany? What is that? What's the difference? Yeah. What's the historical context here? What is World War II again? And then uh, oh, yeah. well, <laughs> let, let's do for, for we, uh, we don't for have some... to go to uh, World War One, which uh, the result of which actually seeded World War Two in some respects. Yes, um, there, there, there's a long history. Yes, uh, but let's start with World War Two. So uh, uh, when Hitler came to power, he he and his uh, his uh, leadership decided that. Uh, Uh, the Germans needed more what they call Lebensraum. That means room to live. So, uh, and they would, uh, you know, they would start expanding. Uh, at, uh, at, they went into France. Uh, they they took Belgium, the Netherlands. Uh, uh, they annexed uh, uh, Austria and uh, and got a piece of, uh, of of the of Czechoslovakia. And then they decided to uh, march into the Soviet Union, and uh, after after they took Poland, uh, uh, and cut up, cut up Poland together with the Soviet Union. And yes, they were friends. Yes, they were. Uh, uh, not, not there was a non-aggression pact, but yes. between uh, that was signed by Ribbentrop and Molotov. Right, I think both parties knew that eventually they would fall apart. But at the time, uh, it gave the Soviet Union 
a little more a piece of Poland and a little more time to prepare what they thought might happen down the road. And and the German the Germans had you know uh, the the time and uh, the and the ability to pretty much conquer all of Western Europe. Do you think Stalin really knew that it's going to fall apart? Why would somebody like Stalin trust somebody like Hitler? But why did he blunder so bad not to um, read the intelligence that was coming his way? Oh, he the troops he, are amassing he, on the border of he, he the Soviet Union. He didn't trust his own intelligence apparatus. Oh boy. He has one, one example. Uh, um, uh, there was a German communist um, who uh, who went underground when Hitler took over, and he w- he went to Japan as a journalist. His name is Richard Sorge. Richard Sorge had really, really good intel about what the Jap- Jap- Japanese would do and not do. He, and it, I forgot exactly what it was, but uh, it was it came to Moscow, and Stalin totally totally ignored it. And and when Zorga was uh, uh, captured by the uh, by the Japanese, uh, the Soviet Union denied that uh, he was one of theirs, so he was executed. Uh, that the paranoia again uh, uh, does a lot of damage. We, when you don't when you don't believe your own intelligence apparatus, why why bother having one? <laughs> yeah, I mean they're. But I'm sure there's contradictory information coming in from the intelligence apparatus, so it's difficult. I mean, first of all, nobody likes to be disagreed with, especially when you get become more and more powerful. And then the intelligence apparatus is probably mm-hmm. giving you information you don't like. Right. It's often negative information about, yeah. uh, basically information that says that the decisions you made in the past are not great decisions and that's a difficult truth to deal with. Yeah. So there you know in the modern times if we hop around briefly is uh Vladimir Putin has been um not happy with the intelligence of the FSB thereby at least if you read the news right uh choosing uh to put more priority to the GRU for the intelligence in Ukraine. Right. Um but I guess I, I suppose the same story happens there as it this throughout history is paranoia. I I give you uh, an example that uh, um, that comes uh, from a very reliable source, uh, and that my my best German friend uh, worked as a chemist in the in the Stasi, East German intelligence, and uh, he. Eventually, uh, he, he he rose to the rank of major and was in charge of uh, the forgery department. Uh, it's very likely that he made passports that I used to travel. He was aware that there was intelligence that that was uh, that was collected. The Stasi was really good. They had about a thousand people in West Germany, undercover agents, uh, some of them in government. And uh, the Central Committee of, of the party, uh, the decision makers ignored it because it didn't quite fit in their worldview. It didn't quite fit into their plans. Mm-hmm. So, uh, and and one one delicious uh, uh, thing that I just want to add on to this, when when Gorbachev uh, um, wrote his book about Perestroika and Glasnost, uh, the the East German uh, uh, rulers did not like it. They were much, much more orthodox. So they had to print the books in translation. Guess where they wound up? 
They were in the piled up in the hallways of the Stasi. <laughs> they they bought the entire print run. It's fascinating. <laughs> uh, so, but let's backtrack. So, Operation Barbarossa, invasion of Hitler right, to the Soviet right. Union, and then hopefully that leads us all the way to East Germany, West Germany right. after the end of the war. So, what what happened was uh, uh, the Soviet Union rolled into the eastern part of Germany, and the the, the Western Allies uh, took. Uh, a larger chunk, uh, which was uh, uh, eventually, uh, it was occupied by the three allies, the French, the, uh, the, the English, and the Americans. And the eastern part was occupied by the, by Soviet troops. And the Soviet uh, troops actually uh, conquered Berlin. Yeah. But as a... And, 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 as in, in a in a contract, they uh, decided that Berlin would be ruled by the four allies, and they all had you know had free uh, access to uh, that city. I was born in the East German part, which very quickly became uh, uh, ruled by communists slash socialists. the The Communist Party and the Socialist Party united and. But the leaders of that new party were all communists. It's nevertheless called democratic. Yes, <laughs> German Democratic Republic, which uh, was formed um, a couple of months after I was born. I was born into a the remote east, southeastern corner uh, of of East Germany, and uh, interestingly enough, uh, genetically, I'm only half German. The the What's other the other half uh, the other half is Czech and Polish. Nice. Because uh, where I grew up, you know, we I could walk to the Nysa River, which was the uh, border with Poland, and and it was only about an hour by bus to get to the Czech uh, border. So that's why I'm a mix. So okay, so East Germany after the war was communist, socialist, yeah. and then the West Germany was representing the Western world with the right. democracy. And what the United States did, what, this was really, really very uh, forward-looking, very strategic, the, the, the Marshall Plan, to rebuild the economy in the West. As compared to what the Soviet Union did, They whatever they hadn't destroyed on the way in, they took with them uh, on the way out for reparations because you know they had every right to do that. But it was uh, not a good idea because you know East Germany was always behind in economic development uh, to to their Western counterpart. So when you were young, as today, but when you were mm. young, you were clearly an exceptional student. Yeah, you're a brilliant academic superstar. Let's go to your childhood. What's a fond memory from childhood that you have in being woken up to the beauty? of this world and sort of being curious about all the mysteries around you that I think ultimately lead to academic um, success. <laughs> or was it? Or the, was the, fo the fondest memory that, that comes to <laughs> mind is my first kiss. How's that? Do, do you want to go to the details of that? What, what, uh, <laughs> what, 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 what'd you make of that? Uh, what'd you make of that kiss? What, what, would that oh. teach you about yourself and human nature and all that? It taught me only in hindsight. At the time, I was just like, my God, I was head over heels in love. I was 16 years old. Yeah. And uh, I, I, I knew in those days, I admired girls. I, I knew that girls were like uh, sort of um, 
uh, magical beings. They were not capable of doing evil things. Mm -hmm. They were beautiful and they had to be adored. Yeah. And one of them actually loved me too. She came after me initially. Yeah. Right, and, and that was like that was that too was magical for you. Oh my God, yeah. <laughs> uh, and and I literally I uh, dedicated. That's when I started studying. Up until that point, I just like did whatever I had to do to be an A minus student. And that's when I started studying. And every A that I got, I dedicated to her. Sometimes explicitly. Uh, because I knew I was going to take care of her, you know, when as I grow up. So you're going to have to work hard in yes. this world to be somebody that could be adored by the by those you love. Yes, you're right. You know that that kiss. <clears throat> the, the next day, I was running around in school with a grin on my face, yeah. and maybe that, in some way, that grin never fades. So, um, what about the heartbreak that followed? Well, the heartbreak <laughs> surely followed. followed. <clears throat> But just to uh, <laughs> ex expand on this a little more, yes. because uh, that that passion that I had uh, was an indication that eventually love would play a big role in my life. I wasn't aware of it. I was just directed at this one girl. But uh, uh, but that, that you understood that that feeling. Oh my God! That yeah. taught you something like that. You're somebody that can feel those things. And Absolutely. That, and there's that's a strong yeah. kind of part of who you are and therefore it will also be a part of directing your life trajectory. Yeah, yeah. so we we were an item for two years. Uh, I lost my virginity. Congratulations. She was not a virgin at the time. <laughs> she, she, my, my, my competitor was... Uh, <laughs> it, it, there always is a competitor. Yeah, there was... <clears throat> Isn't that was how it, it works? He studied medicine in, in college already. In which ways was he better than you? Uh, he wasn't. He was older, and he was more experienced. Yeah. And he was going to be a doctor, and uh, I. But you know, I was there, and he was not. Ah. The, the you know presence wins. Yeah. But you still had big dreams. You wanted to be a, a tenure professor. Yes. Yes. So that, you that, you still want to outdo that guy. Oh yeah, and and she she eventually told me that uh, you know he he was he was not in the picture anymore. So it was back and forth, back and forth, and uh, the our senior year we were an item, and uh, and I was just dreaming of uh, you know the future. But sort of we didn't figure out that you know in those days if she went to college in Berlin and I went to college in Jena, and the the distance to, to uh, between the two cities was too. It was too much to for a weekend visit. You know, public transportation was very slow, and nobody had cars. So, uh, so the circumstance of life, you drifted yeah, apart. Yeah, and so we interacted uh, with a couple of letters, and then I got the goodbye letter. Oh my God! That hurt. I can still feel it. <laughs> you you uh, know when that's when, that's a good thing that you could feel the pain. That's still part of love. That's that's that the pain of loss is still part of love, and then you kind of change that, you shape it, and you give that love in deeper, more profound ways to future that's, people. That's very well put. But it, at the time, it, <laughs> it, it it emptied me out. Yeah. If if I had uh, a tendency uh, to you know to have suicidal thoughts, I might have killed myself. It was. So you would you say that was one of the darker moments of your life? Um, let me see. <laughs> yeah, as a single moment, yes. 
So, you know, I'm, <clears throat> I still remember uh, we had a, a, a mail slot in the front door and I, uh, I was expecting a letter any day and there was the letter. I go upstairs into my, uh, my bedroom and I open it and I read it. And I was just like, the life went out of me. You You're know? just there alone and it, you have to experience this pain alone. So, but and now you're deeply alone in this world. Yes, because I didn't have a, uh, there was no emotional uh, relationship with my parents. Uh, I, I literally had nobody. So this love you have in you had no, had no place to go. It was choked off. All right. So, uh, but I, uh, what I did was I, uh, I, I wanted to go on, right? And so, I threw myself into the study of chemistry. I outworked all of my fellow students in a big way. I just like, I worked my ass off and since I was pretty smart too, I just aced practically everything. And for the first two years in college, and look, we go to college, there are all these pretty girls and there's dances and everything. We had this this great student club where uh, I, I didn't look at any girls. I, I, Eventually, I knew I was going to, you know, want to have female companionship, but love, uh-uh, no more. That hurts. There's a there's a song that goes, "Love hurts." Yeah, yeah I know that one. That's true. There's actually many songs that have a similar message. Yes. Uh -huh. um, so during that time, during your excellence, just being an exceptional student in, uh, of chemistry, let's go to your story. So. Um, in your book, Deep Undercover, My Secret Life Entangled the Allegiances as a KGB Spy in America, and in the really, really excellent podcast series that I've been listening to, it's, people should definitely listen to it. It's called The Agent. You document your time as a KGB spy before, during, and after. Can you tell the story of when you first were contacted by the KGB, Those right. how you were in, invited, the offer to join yeah. was made? Well, it was a big surprise, and I, I never thought of myself as a, as a potential agent. You know, I, I was going to be a tenured professor and join the ruling elite, because in, uh, in, in Europe, tenured professors are few. It's not like in the United States, you know, anybody who teaches at colleges has a, has a title of professor. Easy now. <laughs> it's true. <laughs> yes, That's yes. not a criticism. No, it's 100%. Just a, so we should also clarify that tenured professor or not, it, it is a very prestigious position throughout history of Europe. Yeah, uh, yeah. I, was, I would say, especially communist, I, I don't know, actually know the full landscape of the respect, but at least in the Soviet Union where I grew up, it's it's a prestigious position. Absolutely was. Uh, and the, the town of Yena had about 100,000 people live there. And um, I would, it's a wild guess, but maybe 30 tenured professors, and they were part of the ruling elite. I was trying to do it as much as I can to live the good life, right? You know, you know, have access to things that uh, that are nice. Yeah, but I think the powerful thing about being a professor in that context of East Germany is the prestige. And the feeling of superiority. <laughs> you know, I, I was full of myself. You know, when, when, when you are the best of the best, and I, and I, in my third year, I received a scholarship uh, the Karl Marx scholarship uh, that was limited to 100 c concurrent recipients in the country. 
So my God, no, I, I, I was full of myself. I, I, I believed in myself, hook, hook, line, and sinker, and 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 I was also, uh, uh, this, uh, I got a lot of uh, accolades from teachers and fellow students. So they were feeding the ego, the old. I mean, yeah, you, you have to believe in yourself uh, often when you're young to truly sort right. of to, right. to excel, and and you sure as heck did. <laughs> But you know, as a balance, you need a mentor, somebody who puts things in perspective. And I didn't have one. My my father was a non entity, and nobody else. They they all looked up to me. Yeah, I was an up and coming guy, right? So there's no father figure that put you in your place. Not at check. all. And and I give you one extreme example. It was down the road when I fathered a child out of wedlock. Um, um, that was in my fifth year, I believe. the The Communist Party in East Germany was uh, very moralistic. If you did that, they would have a talk with you and give you whatever a severe reprimand. Nobody even mentioned a word about this. So yeah, so this is this is how this ego gets gets nurtured. But anyway, getting back to how the KGB uh, uh, came in contact. So they most likely got uh, knowledge of me by, you know, looking at uh, Stasi uh, records. Stasi. What's, what's Stasi? Oh, that, that was East German secret police, Staatssicherheit, uh, uh, security uh, for the state. There's that word security again. <laughs> and uh, they pretty much kept a record uh, on on everybody in the country. And um, so when you, when you look through this, in, and, and this is what the KGB was looking for. They were looking for candidates particularly for this kind of job that they had in mind for me, for candidates uh, who were not, you know, in their mid-20s, uh, who were not fully developed yet, but mature enough to to get there. Uh, and, and, and still young enough, right? Because at that level of maturity, you can test whether they can handle this kind of job. Yes, absolutely right. So, and uh, um, one day I got, got a knock on my door and my dorm room door was on a Saturday. Um, and uh, they knew that I was by myself. How did they know it? Uh, we had a, I, I pieced this together. Uh, <laughs> uh, we had a, an a exchange student from the Soviet Union and he was next door uh, to me. And he, you know, he he befriended me, so he he got to know me a little bit, and and it, the pattern was that my roommate would always go home for the weekend, and of course they also knew which door to knock on, even though there were no nameplates, right? So somebody knocks, uh, and uh, I knew it was a stranger because if it, if it had been a student, uh, the the uh, pattern was that we would knock on the door and then go in. Mm-hmm. We wouldn't wait for somebody to to let us in. So I didn't. I waited for ten seconds, and I he didn't come in. I said, I knew that was a stranger. I said, "Come on in," and in came a person uh, who spoke fluent German. So that was not a KGB guy. That was a collaborator. Uh, when and so he st- he started making a bunch of small talk. He introduced himself as the uh, as a representative of Carl Zeiss Jena, which was the optics. Uh, um, um, company that made that was made really really good optical instruments it was one of the best in the world. So it's it's like the 
you know, the the, the super prestigious yep. company in that place. Right, and he said, you know, I, I, that he was a representative of that company, and he would just want to find out if what my plans were after graduating from college. And at that point, I knew he wasn't from Karlsruhe, Jena, because in those days there was no recruitment. You, when when you were done, uh, if you were in the top ten <clears> percent <throat> of the graduates, you would most likely pick to stay and get a doctorate, right? Mm -hmm. And the rest of them were assigned. You know, wherever you had no choice. <laughs> so, so that guy was an idiot. Mm-hmm. He, he he didn't know the basics uh, about. <laughs> you interviewed him a little bit to understand, like oh is, sure, is, you is, know is he, I you know I started like feel out is this guy full of shit because yeah, yeah he's a stranger showing up to your dorm room and I knew that at that point I knew he was Stasi, which is wrong, but it uh, doesn't matter because he was German and I had no idea that the KGB would be involved. So, uh, so sorry to pause briefly. Did you have a sense? Did people know that there's a Stasi type of organization, that there is a, a large number of people doing this kind of work in East Germany? Did, in, yeah. in order for you to make that guess, yeah, we 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 knew that the Stasi existed. Uh, we we even had our uh, James Bond. You know, we had a, a series uh, called the Invisible Visor, where an, a Stasi employee in East Germany would go into West Germany and hunt down Nazis. Yes. So yes, the Stasi was was known to be there and admired in part, or feared, or both. I I, I thought they were necessary and uh, I admired them. Uh, James Bond. The re yes, the reason I did so because I had no information to the contrary. I never knew anybody personally or even you know somewhat removed who was. Uh, uh followed by the stasi uh, uh was uh you know put in jail uh i i had no clue i i had no clue that they did a lot of damage and that they were like doing a lot of surveillance of 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 the east german population the same way the kgb that, uh, did for for the soviet union so for me to be talking to somebody from the stasi it was uh it um It raised my interest. I was curious what comes next because I sort of knew something interesting would be coming at me, and i i had no I had no other thoughts about that at that point. So when when he was finally when he uh, he went in he went for the kill by uh, reversing himself. He said, "You know, I got to tell you that I really, I really am not from Karlsruhe. You know, I'm from the government." <laughs> okay, thank you for pointing that out, and then. He asked this question. He says, "Can you imagine to one day work for the government?" And so I gave a pretty clever answer. I said, "Yes, but not as a chemist." So we, I answered the question that he didn't ask. I helped him out. So we made an arrangement uh, to meet meet for uh, lunch, which in Germany is the main meal, uh, at the number one restaurant in in Jena. You know, I still remember what I ate. Uh, what was that? Rump steak with uh, with butter on top and French fries. Oh, this was my favorite. Anyway, um, so when I get to the restaurant, uh, I, I, I saw this fellow sitting in the back there at the table, and uh, there was another person at the table. So I was a little bit hesitant because in those days, 
uh, it was not unusual for for perfect strangers to share a table because there wasn't weren't enough uh, tables and chairs and so forth. So I didn't know if I could approach him, but he he got up and came to me and uh, he took me to the table and he said, uh, "I w want to introduce uh, uh, Herman. We work with our Soviet comrades." Aha, KGB. And then he he disappeared. He says, "I I got something else to do." I never knew his name. I, he just handed me over to the KGB. What was the relationship between the KGB and the Stasi? Is uh, collaborators, close collaborators, or just distant associates? Uh, they were pretty close collaborators, as I told you. That uh, you know, they 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 bought uh, forged documents that the Germans made because the Germans were better at forgery. Uh, they also exchanged information, but they didn't trust each other hundred percent. And 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 I and I tell you why I know that. So they recruited me to send me to West Germany. As I already said, East Germany had a thousand agents over there. Why would they have their, want to have their own? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, okay. This is a fi fascinating internal and external dynamic <laughs> of distrust. Yeah. Okay, so there you are, uh, welcomed by the KGB. When did the offer, the invite come? Well, that took a while. So Herman and, and I uh, had an unofficial relationship for about a year and a half. I would meet him uh, once a week, once every two weeks, initially in his car, but then uh, uh, he, uh, he, um, he took me to a conspirational flat. This was a, uh, an apartment that was uh, occupied by a, a party member, a lady, single lady. When we came in, she would leave. She left us tea and cookies, and then we could f freely talk. He also, uh, at that time, gave me some West German literature magazines to read, which was, of course, forbidden. So already I'm starting to feel somewhat special. And as we were talking about w what they had in mind for me in general, I knew that I was going to be even more special because I would be above the law. I would I would operate outside the law of, of the countries I would go to, as well as uh, East Germany, because you know the the magazines and uh, and eventually when when I joined up, uh, they told me I had better watch West German television, which was also not explicitly pro prohibited, but it was uh, uh, something that could get you in trouble. So, so on many levels, you're super special. You're the James yes, Bond. Yes, yes. So what was that recruitment testing process like? Well, uh, testing whether you yeah. are you have what it takes to be a KGB well, agent. First of all, um, we had very in-depth talks, uh, me, uh, Herman and I, uh, about life, and I, I, I was. I still am very honest in sharing my feelings. Uh, philosophical or personal? Personal. Personal. I even I even told him that I was shy around the girls. Mm -hmm. uh, he he was giving you relationship advice or what? Well, uh, yeah, how he, old he, was he? <clears throat> so what what was the dynamic? Can you tell me? Was it a father son? No, was it a older brother. Older, older brother. brother. Yeah, he was uh, maybe in his uh, early to mid thirties, and I was maybe ten years younger. And what languages did he speak? Uh, he speak German. He spoke German pretty well. Uh, but he's originally from oh, Russia. He, yeah, with a Russian accent. Uh, so I got in trouble one time with him when when I asked him, "Is your real name German?" 
<laughs> he didn't like that. He didn't like it. Well, was he good with girls? Was was no, what, no. What, he what just you know he, he told. I remember what he told me. He says, you, you know, you got to understand one thing. They're looking for guys too. <laughs> that's that's all. You know. Oh, uh, girls are looking for yeah, guys yeah, too. Yeah, it's it's a competitive game. Yeah, the, the, yeah. Don't, don't 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 worry about it. You know, don't be so shy. So know? that little flame of love that we talked about. Yeah. In all the shapes that it takes in our life. Did he talk to you about that, that that could be taken advantage of, that that could be used, or was it implied? Yeah, but not in, not, it was not very focused, not in great detail. So let's, uh, so we talked about personal stuff and, you know, likes, dislikes. He, he gave me tasks. For instance, uh, when my friend and I uh, hitchhiked uh, from, from East Germany all the way down to Bulgaria, he told me to write a report about it, what I saw. So. Yes. It, fundamentally, he wanted to see how well I can uh, I can write, and how well I can report, uh, how well I uh, observe. Uh, he also asked me to write some profiles about fellow students. I don't believe that was for them to give him to the Stasi. It was just like, how, how well do I characterize people? What's a, that's important when you're talking about uh, when I was in the U.S. Uh, uh, active in the U.S., I operated as a spotter, so I did exactly that. I wrote uh, profiles about people. Uh, he also gave me some tasks to do that were uh, rather unpleasant. Um, like what? Uh, he would give me an address and a name of, uh, uh, of uh, the people who lived at the address, and he told me to go there ring the doorbell, and find out something about a relative who lived in West Germany. Uh, that is undercover exploration, right? So you go, you you make up a story and somehow win the confidence of your target to tell you something that you want to know. Was that, did that come naturally to you? The no, no, I hated it. The charisma involved? Uh, Which part I, did you hate? Yeah, charisma. I think I didn't know that I had it. <laughs> oh, it took you some time to Be, discover. Because it. I, you know, I was, I always was, and I still am to some degree a bit shy. Uh, I lost a lot of the shyness uh, after moving to the south because uh, here in the United States, because uh, you don't have to be shy, you know. I'm, <laughs> you, you can uh, uh, let your love shine. That's exactly yeah. right. So, but anyway, I I hated doing that, but I I did it well. I still remember. So I, in those days, I had a I had a beard, and uh, I, I I rang the bell and uh, tall, handsome fella. Yeah, and uh, and I I looked the part. I said, I'm a I'm a sociology student, and I'm I'm doing a survey, and I asked a whole bunch of questions. Can would you like to answer the questions? Mm -hmm. No problem. Uh, and then I directed the conversation to the lady's private life, and da -da, and she actually gave me information. She volunteered information that I wanted to know. Beautiful. <laughs> I did well, and the other one uh, that I didn't like, uh, but I also did well with when uh, when Herman uh, drove me t around the city and showed me a building, and he said, find out what organization is in there, what they do, uh, maybe get to know some people, and I did that pretty well also. You know, you have to be inventive, you know, to to come up with a cover story, and, and I've always been quite... Uh, uh, inventive, uh, you know. I'm a storyteller uh, and, uh, at heart, 
And that I didn't know it then, but that, you know, I, but there was still something unpleasant about it. That, yes, yes. Because, which part was unpleasant? Well, the shyness, and then you know, you know, I wasn't very comfortable lying. I became comfortable down the road, but you know, I, I was brutally honest, uh, and and never, never hid anything of me. Uh, but you know, over time, you lose that that um, uncomfortable feeling and you rationalize that you got to do it. There's only one way, right? And you're serving a good cause. So you were talking to Herman for a year and a half. A year and a half. And then how did that progress? Yes. So he sent, he finally, I, I guess he sent a report uh, to headquarters in Berlin. And uh, then he sent me uh, on a three-week, quote-unquote, practice trip to Berlin. Hmm. This was the first time when I had a, a like a consp conspir conspiratorial meeting where I would I had an address and a time mm -hmm. and a code phrase and I met another agent. His name was Boris. These names meet, were meaningless. They were all like cover names, right? And so the, what was the code and the meeting? What was then? What can you give a little more? That code I don't remember. No, but not the code, but like what do you mean by code? So oh, what was I, I tell you my the, the the code we used when I, I when I met while I was active, uh, I would approach the other person who I thought maybe the the person I want to meet. We both had uh, uh, some something to with us or on us to make us more likely to be the right person. Mm -hmm. uh, so uh, and I would uh, I would ask him the following questions. Uh, excuse me. Uh, I'm looking for Susan Green, and he and he would answer, "Yes, you must be David." Mm -hmm. Stupid! If if I if I ask a stranger, they would look at me. Well, how could I help you? So yeah. I know it's the wrong guy. Yeah, it's just a low probability that that the right thing would be oh, said. So it's, absolutely, it's a nice like, handshake, and it seems like a safe statement. Yes. if it's not the right person, exactly it, right, it would just and, come off. You, absurd or crazy or whatever. You you would have or, made a, you would have made a good secret agent. You you know exactly. How do you know I'm not? <laughs> this is this is. We'll discuss this. Uh, <laughs> I'm dressed like one. I, actually, yeah. Were, were there any dress code? No, just fit in. Fit in, no right. matter what, and then be creative. Yeah. Figure out ways to fit. Right. So, anyways, he gave me some tasks, and we and he since I I, I had rented a room in a house. He gave me uh, Western literature to read, uh, and we spent time together. Um, and uh, there was a practice run to West Germany. Actually, there were two. And that was very important. In hindsight, I figured that out. Uh, so I traveled to West Germany uh, no, not to West Berlin, with an East German passport that uh, was stamped uh, that uh, that individual was allowed to go to the West. And uh, there was a uh, a part of the uh, border that was uh, um, only uh, guarded by Soviet troops. And that's where they smuggled me into West Germany. I got on the subway uh, and, and then... Uh, 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 appeared in, in West Berlin. No, no, no Americans, no Brits, no French knew that that I had entered. Uh, forged documents or not? Not, not no, no. This time. was a an East German passport. It was real. Okay. 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 So, uh, and uh, the first trip, 
all they wanted me to do is just walk around, you know, smell the air, uh, you know, have a beer or whatever and, and eat a sausage and then come back. The second trip, I had a task, very similar to the one that, that I had back in Jena, to ring the doorbell someplace and uh, talk to some people. And that worked very well as also. I, I should mention that you talk about that, you know, eat a sausage, drink some beer. I suppose that's a good test too, to see how you behave yeah. under Western like when first introduced to the Western mm -hmm. culture, like uh, this is why I might not make a good agent is when I first uh, came to the United States and supermarket, uh, like bananas, as many bananas as I want to eat. <laughs> that I think I would, that I think that would break me. <laughs> it's a shock. Just, just it's a shock to be, uh, to have access to Western culture. You're getting very close to the reason they actually made me do this these two practice trips the at when i first emerged on west berlin territory i felt highly uncomfortable that was at the enemy right yeah and i saw the cops everywhere and even those those cops had like light blue uniforms not the they weren't standouts so i was wondering you know if, if they knew that you know i had like KGB <laughs> yeah. on my forehead. So you were paranoid that they would know, they would see. I was scared, but I, I overcame that. So that's, can we just linger on that? Because I suppose that's a natural, like if I give anybody on the street the mission to do the mission you had to do, is they would be paranoid. That's a natural human yeah. feeling is, am I being watched, do they know? Um, like if you try to steal something from a store, you're, there's going to be a feeling like, are they watching me? Are the cameras watching? Are the people watching me? They all know the, that kind of stuff. So you have to over, or you have to be somehow rugged and robust to that kind of feeling and overcome it. Yes, exactly. So and and uh, something very interesting happened uh, while I was being trained in Berlin. I met a classmate of mine from high school, and he confided to me that uh, he was recruited by the Stasi to become a spy, go as a spy to West Germany. And he also had this practice trip and he peed in his pants. He went back and told him, I can't do that. Just from the terror, the-, the Yes. The, that paranoia. Now, this guy's career was over. He had, a, he, had a, an, uh, he had an engineering degree. He was a pretty smart guy. He, he was just for the rest of his life, and he's still alive, I believe, floating around and, you know, trading in uh, model railroads and stuff like that. You mean, do you think that experience broke him? Uh, or no, they, they wouldn't let him back in. Oh, I see. They, oh. Yeah. So I mean, this, it's a test that if you fail, you pay the price. I had no idea that, that uh, you, you know, uh, something bad would happen if I failed that test, but I didn't. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't fail. So, and this led then to the offer, all right? And uh, after, you know, Boris was happy with me and he told his boss, who was most likely the the head of the KGB in, in, in East Berlin, and I had an appointment to meet. In East Germany. Yes, in East Germany. Yeah, all of East Germany. Yes. That's right. An appointment to meet with him. And as we walk into the room, uh, there was this, this huge desk and a little guy sitting behind it. Very, very... Uh, just like little and not, not unimpressive, right? Yes. 
a lot of paraphernalia, like you know, I had a, had a bust of uh, Jasinski on on on, on his desk, and uh, and some 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 paintings, uh, Lenin and so forth. But when the guy opened his mouth, he went like, "Whoa!" A huge uh, psychological energy. He spoke only Russian. Now uh, and initially, he would you know start to bet with five minutes worth of propaganda why we're doing what we're doing. Mm-hmm. I didn't need that. I understood most of it, uh, but what I when when I didn't understand, I asked Boris to translate, and then then he sprung it on me, and I was not prepared. He he said, "So what? Are you in or not?" Mm-hmm. And I was no. I'm gonna. I'm, I, w- I hadn't made up my mind. I wasn't expecting that would come, and. Uh, so um, I said to him, I'm not really trained. You know, there's a lot of things I need to learn. And I came up with a couple of really stupid things. One, one not so stupid, but the other one was, I don't know why I said that. I said, for instance, I need to learn how to drive a car and to type with a typewriter. Yes. <laughs> and he, 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 was, he got really annoyed and he said, don't worry about it. We'll train you. Yeah. But... I got to tell you, we need people who are decisive. So I, you got until tomorrow noon to give Boris your decision. That made for a sleepless night. So what was going through your mind? Well, I had, uh, this was almost 50-50. Uh, I, I knew I was going to have a huge career, a good career. I would. I was on my way uh, because, you know, this, I was already... Uh, employed by the university as an assistant professor. So that career would be uh, to become a professor, become a tenure professor, be a world-class? Yes. Uh, Jena had become my hometown. I really loved the place. It, it, it was my oyster. And, uh, and my family was my basketball team. I was. So you 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 love playing basketball. Oh, absolutely. So that's what you mean. Yeah. So this is home. This is home. This is this, where your love is. This, this, is, this is where was it's home. Did you understand that the choice involved leaving yes. the home behind? Yes. And and uh, the one thing I didn't have, the two things I didn't have, an emotional relationship with my mother, mm-hmm. and I didn't have a steady girlfriend at the time. I think Freud would have a lot to say about that. But yeah, go ahead. But the connection between those two. But yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm sure. By the way, my 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 friend Günther, the one who worked for the Stasi, was also uh, the Stasi tried to recruit him as an agent, but he had a love relationship at the time, and uh, he said politely, "No, I I won't, I can't." So you didn't have. That's the one thing that really could uh, would have helped me. Would have held you to right. this place as love. So you got the career on the one hand, my basketball team, the town that I would be part of, the ruling elite of. Uh, and then we had this great adventure and the ability to uh, contribute to the victory, the worldwide victory of communism and, and stick it to the Nazis. Yeah. And of course, the feeling that you're really special. Yeah, James Bond. Yeah. What's <laughs> the, the, the question, do I want to be a tenure professor or James Bond? Yes. And, and, and that, as funny as that sounds, that was probably a difficult decision. It was a difficult decision, but <laughs> fundamentally, it wasn't, it, and it wasn't my uh, zeal uh, to, to help the revolution. It was my, uh, my uh, what they called, what the Stasi was looking for, uh, the KGB was looking for in, 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 a, in a character that they would send over, a well-controlled inclination to adventure, okay? <laughs> 
Yeah, James Bond, what do you say? <laughs> and the love of women, yeah. <laughs> I was. Uh, <laughs> yes, uh, um, I, I got to p- put this in right here because I, I'm telling people I have two things in common with James Bond. These are my initials, JB. And and uh, I got the girl too, three times. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean there, that's and that's adventure. Yeah, and and, uh, adventure. and 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 the ability to travel to the West because the West was closed off to us. We could go to foreign countries, but they all had to be communist countries. You know, I wanted to see Paris because I I had um, uh, fallen in love with the. Um, Honoré Balzac, who wrote Balzac, yeah. a, a phenomenal set of novels that I just ate up. And so I, I, when I eventually did go to Paris, I knew all the places already because he described them all. But anyway, so that one, it was a, it was 5149, but eventually, it, and you know, <laughs> when, you, when you do the side-by-side um, um, intellectual comparison, that doesn't work. It becomes a tie, and then you know you just go with your gut, and I said, "Hey, I'm in." So now that you successfully passed the test, and you were sitting with this unimpressive man, and had the invite, and had to sleep on it, and have made the decision to join, yeah, what was next? I was just told to, you know that I was being recruited by the State Department of East Germany. I was going to become a diplomat. I must have had some paper, but I forgot because just by saying so, that would that wouldn't have worked. There's some kind of document that says the yeah, yeah, and yeah. that was the only entanglement you had to that to that place. No love, no That's just right. the basketball. Uh, oh, the basketball, giving up basketball was huge for me. I loved playing that game. I started playing basketball when, when I was 18. Mm-hmm. That's a little late. Are you better offensive, defensive? What do you like more? Do you like to shoot from a distance? Do you like to play um, I was a runner. I, I was Fast. very very quick on my feet. Hmm. And I was a good jumper too. I typically pay, uh, played the, uh, the the four position, you know. What's that? Uh, forward. Oh, the forward position. Forward yeah. position. But anyway, um, so that 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 was the, the hardest uh, uh, for me to give up. Um, but and the the other thing that I remember I had to do to hand in my party document to the party secretary of the university, and uh, he made a comment. Yeah, we probably won't hear much about you, but uh, we know that you're going to do something very important. So he sort of had a, had an inkling that. Uh, I'm going. I'm going to go someplace uh, undercover or something like that, and then I packed my bags and uh, got on a train uh, to Berlin for another one of those secret meetings with uh, my my new handler, Nikolai. So, and here here came another test that that would have been quite easy to fail. So, all right, I had lived. Uh, in Jena for six years in a dorm. Even when I became a, an employee of the university, they didn't they didn't have apartments. I was still living in a dorm in, in a one in a single room with a bed, a chair, and a table, and a toilet down the down the hallway. So I figured, you know, Berlin KGB, I'm going to get a nice apartment, right? And so uh, uh, Nikolai took me into his car. We started talking a little bit, and then he said. I have a task for you already. Your first task is to find yourself a place to live. I mean, 
I don't think I showed it in my face, but you know, my heart, my 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 heart dropped like down to into my pants. I I knew this was nearly impossible because there was a severe uh, shortage of uh, of housing in, in 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 everywhere in Germany, East Germany, and, and all the apartments and homes were controlled by by the government. You you know, there were long waiting lists, uh, and I I know I knew couples that. Uh, were promised maybe to get an apartment uh, five years down the road. So and then they would postpone the decision to have a child. Anyway, this was impossible. Uh, well, yeah, but this was a test. Okay, you know, and so because I had to be inventive now. I had to figure out uh, how to get out of an impossible situation. I didn't realize it then at all. I just like, went with the flow, you know. What, what do I do? <clears throat> so what I did... I went, I, I took the, the, the train, the city train, uh, to the very last stop, a little uh, town called Akna, and I wandered around in that town and knocked on doors and asked people if, if they knew uh, where somebody might have a place to live. And after a couple of hours, somebody said, there's this lady that, and she gave me, they gave me the address. And I talked to the lady, and she said, "I happen to have a place that you might uh, that where you might be able to stay. It was an outbuilding. Uh, I don't know what it what it served. It was not a garage. It was concrete, and it had um, a bed and a chair, a running cold water, and a stove, a cold stove." That was my was going to be my pretty basic, pretty basic. That's pretty your, basic? Are you kidding that, me? <laughs> that, that's the uh, toilet across the, the the yard, of course. Yeah, well, all the essentials. What are you complaining about? So you, you were right. <laughs> You're right. You had to run the uh, the special. The James Bond had to run the spe special operation out of the yes. outhouse. Got to it. to <laughs> to my credit, and I think that that that, uh, that established part of my reputation. I didn't complain at all. To Nikolai, no. that was part of the test, probably. Yeah. yeah, I just told him, you know, I found something, and so uh, for six months, I would get up in the morning, get on the train, and walk around in the city. You know, uh, did some operational stuff, uh, operational training. I went to the library, did a lot of reading in the library, and then I found a basketball team that I could join. So at least I could take a shower to, uh, twice a week, um, and. Uh, and apparently, I, it took about six months that I was still on probation because after six months, Nikolai, one day, we were still meeting in his car. He said, he, he handed me a key and he said, I'm going to take you to your new apartment. Now, I, and I didn't know this, you know, that now I was really in. Okay, <laughs> imagine you know, the hurdles you have to jump over, and how many times you can fail. But you know, but not complaining, not asking questions. Yes, I mean that was something you've written about. Um, I think you wrote that bosses do not like to hear complaints or problems; they prefer solutions. That's right. <laughs> so, what was your interaction like with the bosses? Is that essentially um, represent the way it went forward as yeah. well? I, no I, complaints. Get no complaints. No, no arguments. No, no. I know this better. I was taking it all in. Now the the the, the technical guys, you know, they taught me something I didn't know that made sense. Uh, um, what Nikolai, some of the stuff that he taught me, 
was somewhat questionable. He was a generalist, and there's some things he didn't know really well. So I could have, like, asked and probed a little bit, but I didn't. So I just played along. <clears throat> so this new apartment was a, uh, it was a studio. It, it, it had a, a kitchen with running cold water, and the bathroom was just one flight down the toilet, not a bathroom, uh, one flight down the, the, the stairs. It's uh, an upgrade. It was a big upgrade. <laughs> yeah. And he gave me, uh, I think he gave me a thousand mark to buy buy furniture. Mm-hmm. And in that place, I actually I also bought a TV and started watching West German television. So, so it, it, it I finally had a decent place to stay. Um, and the the my training in Berlin took about two years. What was the training? What were the interesting aspects to the training? What, what were sort of if you okay. do an overview systematic of what was the training process? What was difficult? Right. What are some insights that generalize? to the training process of what it takes to be a KGB spy. Right. So uh, let me start with the tradecraft. So I was taught Morse code. That took a while. Uh, I, I I was uh, instructed in how to, you know, use a shortwave radio and to receive uh, you know, the, the shortwave uh, transmissions with Morse code. Mm-hmm. I was taught... Uh, uh, and a encryption and decryption algorithm, manual a- algorithm. Manually, yep. You you might be interested that eventually I figured out uh, at least one of the patterns. Uh, the the algorithm was such that the and this was all about digits, like mm-hmm. uh, and the algorithm was such that in the end the uh, the digits that were used to decipher other digits that were handed uh, that were sent to me via shortwave radio, there were let's say if there were a hundred digits, there were an equal number of ones, twos, threes, fours, five, six, and seven, and up until zero. And I was told that uh, these um, uh, algorithms, these manual algorithms, were were good for about three hundred uses. After that, they could still be. Deciphered. I'm assuming nowadays that uh, wouldn't take as much. Yeah, with with computers for sure. But there's probably they're probably designed in a way that you can manually sort of uh, it's efficient and convenient to use them manually. Well, it's not it's, to, uh, it, to optimize cryptographic security. It's to optimize. It's like to balance security and like humans being able to actually. Yeah. No, I got to disagree. It was neither efficient nor convenient. Okay. It would took a long time. So it wasn't designed uh, well. <laughs> when what was what was significantly easier to do, uh, but uh, that would require you to have spy paraphernalia with you. This is what's called a one-time pad. Uh-huh. So you have the the set of numbers yeah. on on a sheet of paper uh, that had to be developed. I had to use iodine to make those numbers visible. Those are known to be uh, unbreakable unless they are used multiple times. The same, the same sheet of paper, mm-hmm. because you know the person who encrypts has the same set of numbers as the person who uh, who decrypts, and one one time use you cannot figure out what the message is. Oh, interesting! But this is a quick way to communicate from one person to another. One yes, time, the, one time. Well, one time, but I had a pad with multiple uh, sheets oh, of paper, right? And uh, the reason that uh, they gave me a manual one is because I literally I had. Only when I when I wound up in the United States, I had only one thing with me that uh, 
a, only a spy can have, and that was a uh, a writing pad with uh, where the first ten pages or so were impregnated with a trace of a chemical that was used for secret writing. Uh, but you really would have to know what you're looking for to, you know, you see this pad. It was bought, bought at uh, no, Walmart. And can you explain a little, little further? What what is the chemical here? That what are we talking about? So how I I don't understand how it's possible to have a physical pad that does the encryption without any computing. I how does it encrypt? All right. So so no no it doesn't it doesn't do any work. You know so. And the uh, the communication that the encrypted communication was uh, was a, uh, a set of uh, uh, groups of five, five digits, and another five, and, and there's always a gap in between. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, so, let's say if I get this radio transmission, I write them all down, mm-hmm. and then I then I use my uh, develop my algorithm, and then I do mathematics, either addition or subtraction. Mm-hmm. The resulting set of digits. Had that then had a one to one correlation to letters, and this is an easy way to then do the correlation. Got yes, well, yes. oh, that's cool. That's was, uh, was and that, you're saying the algorithm was not efficient, it was not. Oh, the that, manual that t- took a long time, and and you can't make an error, <laughs> right? Uh, would you know where can you is it easy to debug? No, you no, no you do it twice. You do it twice, and that's how you check. If it's identical, then you know. <laughs> but like, if it's if not, it's not then then, have... yeah, then one is right and the other is wrong. So you got to do don't it make again. mistakes. No, that's right, and I re- right. really didn't. But anyway, um, so th- th- I was I was learning that. Uh, I was also uh, told that I was required to become proficient in another language, and they gave me a choice, and I picked English. That's what was the other one? Oh no, they gave me. Pick one, friend. Oh, you know one. whatever okay. is spoken in the West. Got it. Uh, what was what was what would be second to you? Would you, would you think French because of Paris? What would you? What why English? English was a no brainer because I I was a straight A, stu- a-, a student in English without studying. Like it came so easily to me. Yeah. So that's why I cho- <laughs> chose it, right? Uh, right. So that was that. Uh, then. Uh, um, I, uh, I I was taught the basics of um, uh, counter surveillance, you know, some trickery and 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 uh, uh, surveillance detection routes where you wander around in the city for three hours and determine whether you're being followed or not. Mm-hmm. That requires you to plan the route very well. I give you one example that uh, that will uh, illustrate that. Uh, it's my my favorite spot uh, when 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 I was in Moscow, I did a lot of that also. Uh, and this, this, my favorite spot was I it was a, a not well traveled uh, uh, road. It it went down the hill and and curved, and at the bottom of the hill, there was a telephone booth. And when you open the door and and pick up the telephone, you have to look back. Mm-hmm. So it wasn't like this, right? It wasn't a giveaway. This was normal. It was mm-hmm. natural. So yeah, yeah, I could see if somebody would come walking after me. You know, these kinds of things. Or you would, uh, uh, you know, use um, public transportation, uh, big buildings uh, where you ne- needed to use an elevator and see who's... Because surveillance, the the object of surveillance is to... Never lose sight of the individual who you're surveilling, because at that point, you may miss the window where he does something that yep. that you're looking for. 
So somebody always has to come close, right? Did you have to also study surveillance? No, so only counter surveillance. And what helped me in, in, in all my training, uh, you know, I, I would be, uh, would have a competition with the uh, folks that were coming, that were following me and me. Mm-hmm. And I beat them every time. Uh, they were at a disadvantage because one of them always had to be close. And, and if you saw the same face twice, you know that you were being followed. And I had a very, very good uh, memory for, for faces. So basically figure out a fixed route yeah. mm-hmm. and then a fixed route that allows you to uh, survey the area and then record yeah. the faces you've seen yeah. inside your mind. Yes. And if uh, you see multiple times a single face, that's that's a bad sign. And and they they could they could you uh, use uh, different clothes. Yeah. Uh, what they didn't have was face masks. Yeah. The CIA does nowadays. They they can give you a different face with, within seconds. Oh my god. Yeah. <laughs> so mm. how? Bi- <laughs> I mean, again, you talk about paranoia. Uh huh. Um, is that part of the? Is that a big part of the job? Uh, counter surveillance, like being constantly paranoid that you're being watched. Yeah, I was supposed Isn't to. Isn't that quite stressful? So is that is that one of the? Is that actually an effective way to operate? Uh, no, but it, it sort of becomes a routine. Uh, I was told to do it uh, while in the U.S. Uh, once a month, and uh, okay, it's like a cleaning out. Oh, the, not uh, not every day. No, 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 no. Yeah. Once a month or. Before I would say mail a letter with secret writing, so I was sure that you know nobody saw me put an envelope into Got uh, a post box. So this is one of the tools in your toolbox. So there's Morse code. There's yes the decryption and uh, encryption. There's the counter surveillance, photography, photography, um, making oh. making micro dots. You know what a micro dot is? What's a micro? Well, that's uh, that's uh, uh, you, you use uh, you you take a, a photograph and you use a microscope in reverse and uh, make that photograph really small, so small that it's like the the, the head of a pin that can be used uh, to uh, hide under a postage stamp. Uh, in reality, I knew how to make them. But in reality, they they never asked me to to make use of that uh, technique. So, so it's, a, it's a sort of an encryption mechanism for photographs. Yeah. So what we do nowadays uh, embed uh, code in in uh, PDFs and stuff like that, right? <laughs> yeah. Beautiful. Okay. All right. So that that was a, a learning, a training process, both in the physical space and yes. sort of um, yes, algorithmically. Uh, Is there other things? Oh, you, you bet. Uh, <laughs> interestingly enough, the uh, I was uh, the first book I was given to read was the history of this, uh, the uh, Communist Party of the Soviet Union. Oh, so understand? Yeah, that's interesting because you said you had to read Western literature. Yeah, that too. How that, much? That, how much reading? So history. How much history? Uh, politics, geopolitics. N- not culture. much more. The, but they made me read that document. Uh, other than that. I wasn't supposed to study the Soviet Union. I wasn't yeah. supposed. And that, that was not, and I didn't, when they sent me to Moscow, it wasn't to learn Russia, Russian, right? It wasn't to learn English. Um, the, the second document they gave me was the, the Constitution of West Germany. 
And then I got lots of magazines and stuff like that. Uh, as I told you, I was uh, also told to uh, uh, watch West German television, which I, which I uh, embraced with a vengeance because it was better than East German. Mm. So I would get up in the morning and have a little breakfast and watch the German version of Sesame Street. <laughs> and that 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 helps you um that helps you g get an understanding of the culture oh, because you if you have to do any kind of uh interaction yes. any kind of spying then you have to be in, be sure. able to effectively integrate yourself. Well, you you also have to know like and in, in, in that would have been easier uh if I if they had sent me to West Germany, you know all the soccer teams. You know, stuff that everybody knows. Mm -hmm. When I came to the US, I knew very little stuff that everybody knows. That's why I had to be very cautious and you know, take it in over time. Anyway, uh, and the, the last thing I want to mention is uh, they. Uh, I was strongly encouraged to uh, expand my, my cultural education. In other words, go to visit museums, uh, go to the theater, uh, not so much movies, uh, opera, read read books you know, from all kinds of authors. Uh, that was important to them. And once a month, I had to write a, a report what I did. But the interesting thing, there was not a, there was no curriculum, there was no agenda, there were no check marks. It was all ad hoc. You know, now you do this, and then you do that. Uh, and uh, and a lot of this also they relied on my initiative. Mm -hmm. Again, I mean that's part of the evaluation too. You bet. Uh, <clears throat> are you able to have creative? It's interesting that they're like developing a, a James Bond type of character here, which is what? What's the reason to go to the opera? As you become yes. cultured in a certain kind of way, where perhaps that makes you uh, more charming, more charismatic in terms of your ability to integrate yourself in different situations. You absolutely right. Uh, uh, I, I was. I was, uh, at, 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 when I came to the U.S. after about uh, two years, roughly, um, I was cultured enough to uh, not uh, make a bad impression at a, at a diplomatic soiree in Washington, D.C. I mingled freely. Yes. All right? And, and, and so the whole idea was for me to sort of reach into the upper uh, realms of society where the targets would be juicier than, you know, the worker bees. And how did you end up in Moscow? Why? Yeah. How? What so, is that journey? Well, so I, uh, I told you, and um, I started studying English. So I started back from scratch. You know, I had went. Uh, they paid for a tutor, and I went from like English one hundred and one. That I went through that in a couple of months. Then and then I got another guy with whom. We, I expanded this. We had conversations rather than working from a textbook, and I and I worked like a maniac. I threw myself into the study of of, of uh, uh, English like you wouldn't believe. Um, and and my inspiration came from Vladimir Lenin. I had read somewhere in a book that when Lenin was uh, in exile, he studied German, and he learned one hundred German words every day, new German words. So I started reading newspapers, and every word that I didn't know, I wrote down on, on an index card, uh, German, English, and, uh, and I piled them up. And so I really learned 100 new English words every day. I know this because I counted them, and I had a system how to do this. Uh, 
Uh, so you take your index card and you have five categories. It's a really good way to learn rote by rote. Uh, so you got category one, that's the new ones, and you got category five. So you start with uh, with five. Five you already mm-hmm. had right four times. Mm-hmm. If you have it right again, it I goes, into, it goes into the archive. Oh, like long-term cold archive, yeah, yeah. Four, if you get it right, it goes to five. If you get it wrong, it gets relegated to three. Mm-hmm. So And so you go through this, and uh, um, and occasionally I would throw the archive things back into one. So I really, I really acquired a phenomenal vocab- vocabulary. When I was done with my English, my vocabulary was significantly higher than the average American because I, I, I didn't discriminate. Whatever word I didn't know, I learned, which is not necessarily the best way because, you know, English has a lot of synonyms, right? Yeah, and uh, and one synonym is usually the the preferable one, and and I, uh, when I first interacted with people, I very often used the one that wasn't as good, and people found that that I you know I have an interesting way of talking. They didn't know what that meant, but yeah, well, so it builds a good foundation for a language. Just getting oh, a oh, large yeah. vocabulary. Yes, it's really interesting. There's something I do which is called space repetition, which is a programmatic way of doing this kind of system that you've developed yourself, uh-huh. which is if you successfully remember a thing, it's going to be a longer time before it brings it up to you again. Yeah. Now that's yeah. requires a computer to keep track of the right. information. If you have cars, that's a really interesting pile system. One, two, three, four, five, you upgrade it, one, two, three, four, five. Maybe I wouldn't go to the archive and go to num- to to pile one right away. Maybe I would go to like, I don't know, yeah. pi- pile f- five perhaps is probably the right place to put it because you have to go through that full step again. But that is a really powerful way to uh, learn definitely language, but also facts like people that and go to yes, medical school. Yes. Disconnected facts. Yeah. Uh, and and you pretty much, when you're done, you, you know what you know. Yeah. You don't but have then to, again to use it to integrate it into the music of language. That's more difficult. That's what yeah, you're talking exactly about. Exactly right. Exactly there, right. There's a charm. I mean, I, maybe it's not good for spycraft, but there's a charm to this kind of to having an accent and using words incorrectly but confidently. There's a because language isn't a simple formula. Language nope. is the play of words. So yeah. actually, using the incorrect synonym, it, you know, as it. it uh, you know, if instead of saying I'm cold, saying I'm chilled yeah. or something. Like using offbeat words can actually be part of the charm. So it's interesting if you can learn how to use that correctly. Because uh, I've known a bunch of people with a Russian accent and I feel like they mm. get get away with saying a lot of ridiculous shit <laughs> because they're able to sort of leverage the charm of the uh, non sequiturs. Uh, by the I, way, by the way, just one one thing um, you talked about uh, using a computer. When I had my first uh, personal computer, I actually wrote a program that does that. It does that. By the way, when was that? When because y- you were uh, uh, a world class programmer for a time. You yeah. were a very good programmer. When a, when did the birth? PC was probably nineteen eighty four. 1984. When did you fall in love with programming? When I went to college in the U.S., and part of the core curriculum was that you were required to take a course in computer, and it was mostly just you know talk, but we also had to learn a language. 
uh, we had to write some programs in Fortran, which was what five at the time. It was a <laughs> it was a dumbed down Fortran. Yeah. But listen, so <laughs> I, I I see the ability. I see what what you can do with this. I programmed a sine curve, yeah. and then I divided the the sine curve into really 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 small rectangles, and then ran the program, and it came up with the right area. Wow, this is great. It's incredible. <laughs> it's incredible. It's so powerful. It's a uh, you're creating you're creating a little helper. Yes, that helps you understand the world to help you analyze the world and so on. Uh, we'll we'll return to that because it's interesting. Okay, so, so you have so many interesting <laughs> aspects to your, to your life, but Moscow. So yeah, uh, no, let you, me let, no let me how, how I was sent to Moscow. Okay, yes. so one day I had a visitor from Moscow, uh, and he came to visit me in my apartment uh, together with uh, Nikolai, and he you know we talked, and then he said, "So how's your English?" I said, "I pulled a book from the shelf and says I can read that without the help of a dictionary." Oh. That's interesting. And he said, you know what? I'm, we're going to uh, send you a tape recorder and you just talk, say something, you know, for 20 minutes, whatever you want to talk about. Uh, they sent this thing. And two weeks later, I was on a plane to Moscow <laughs> because yeah. I also spoke English, sort of the British variety of English with not a strong German accent because I've always had the ability to imitate others and sounds. There was an innate ability. I would, uh, you know, when, when, when we were in a lab and uh, as, as students, I would very often uh, do uh, monologues uh, imitating East German comedians. You know, oh, I, I just- impressions. Yeah. Yes, yes. <laughs> I, I'm not good enough to, to make a living out of it, but uh, that raised uh, some interest and so I went, they sent me to Moscow. That was the first time on a plane, by the way. Um, and uh, I had a conversation with two ladies who spoke English. One was a, a Russian, a professor at uh, Lamanasov University. She was obviously KGB. That was her cover. And the other one was an American-born lady. Oh, by the way, she was an actual professor. Are you using that as the cover, or is it just a story? No, I. She said she was a professor. She may have taught there too. I, That's an interesting distinction. Yeah, one is like a story you tell people. No, and one is like you legit. Are doing the thing, but are also yeah. as a couple. Anyway, that's 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 the inter interesting aspect of how to be a good liar. You yeah. might you might as well live the lie. Yeah, exactly right. Uh, so uh, and the other one was a middle aged. Uh, the The Russian was pretty young. The other one was middle aged uh, American, and uh, and so we talked for maybe a couple of hours, and then they withdrew, and I was left alone. Eventually. My my liaison, he came back in and he said, it was close, but the American thinks you can actually uh, become, a, a, you, you get close enough to become becoming a native speaker of American English. And he said, the Russian was very doubtful. So I think wishful, it was, it was a tie, literally. Mm -hmm. Wishful thinking prevailed. So uh, within a couple of weeks, I was moving to Moscow. Mm-hmm. And what what was the task in Moscow? And what and how, how long were you in Moscow? Two years. And what was 
the task there? Is it training or is it espionage? No, it was training. It was uh, training. so. It was I uh, the the American born became my tutor. I met with her twice a week. Uh, I, uh, I I also listened to a lot of BBC shortwave BBC worldwide. Uh, I read uh, more English books. So a lot of that was about the language and the culture of English, uh, American. Of America. And and I did phonetics exercises. Nice. Every night, I had a tape that was about a half hour long, and they would say a word, and I would repeat the word, say a word, repeat the word, and it was it's mostly about the vowels, by the way, most of the accent and. Uh, uh, particularly, let's say, coming from German into into English, but also Russian. It's the vowels. Uh, are we talking about the? So you would have a single word, a like word, apple, and you would just say yeah. apple. Yes, and, now, and you, American English or Brit British English? No, American English. And and, and I give you one uh, example that almost nobody gets right: the difference between hot and hut. Mm. You know, you, yeah, yeah, you know hot what and hot, yeah, and, yeah. and, and, and German speakers, yeah, it's very tough. You know which one? Uh, or it, it, for everyone is different. For example, uh, I could say this on a podcast. Something that my brother struggles with, I struggled with too when I first was, came to this country learning English, is there's differences. There's embarrassing differences, uh, <laughs> like beach and bitch, <laughs> right? <laughs> and you get so as a young kid, also you get so nervous. Of, I don't want to say the wrong thing. I. Um, I can also say that this is almost as a jokey thing, but uh, there's a there's a famous philosopher, uh, Immanuel Kant, and you can uh, guess which other word is very similar to that. So there's a, <laughs> there's a nervousness about uh -huh. the, what is that? That's interesting. I mean, and Germans probably have a different uh, tension of like what is hard to learn, the difference between the pronunciation of the vowels or the control of the vowels. Yeah, it's interesting. So you had to really master this daily exercise. Yes, and, and you know, and, and this this was my discipline. I did this every night, routine, every night. boring as hell. Uh, so English was the focus. And I also had interaction with some uh, agents who had operated in the United States as diplomats on, on a diplomatic cover. They would come and talk to me a little bit and tell me, and, and sort of prepare me what was ahead of me. And then I did a whole lot of operational training, particularly surveillance detection. That was big. I also They also taught me how to drive a car in Moscow. Finally, <laughs> the one skill you needed. What's uh, surveillance detection? Okay, so this is what when, when you uh, find out whether you're being followed. Ah, got it, got it, got it. So it's the anti-surveillance, uh, yeah, the, gotcha. the The abbreviation that's used in... Uh, in, uh, in, in uh, Yes, uh, in... Uh, Intelligence circles is SDR, surveillance detection route. You know, when they say that, you know what that is. Uh, and, and that was it. Uh, and, a, and a few other things, you know, one-offs, for instance, uh, I was once uh, taught uh, to read silhouettes of ships. When you see a ship from a distance, what kind of a ship it w might be. They they <laughs> yeah. thought this would come in handy. Actually, they they uh, there was in in 1982, Andropov uh, started uh, a campaign. It was uh, now I forget the name. Operation something something, where everybody who was in the West was supposed to uh, look for signs that uh, the West was uh, uh, getting ready for a war. And I had an everybody had an object to uh, to pay attention to. I had a uh, 
uh, a harbor, a military harbor in in, um, um, in, in New Jersey uh, near Red Bank. It was called Earl Weapon Station, and the code name for that was Early. So um, they asked me to just wander by there to see if there was something unusual going on. Because the Soviet Union were, at that point, it was Ronald Reagan, were really afraid that Reagan was going to start a war. They were absolutely 100% afraid of him. Is there something memorable to you on a personal level, on a philosophical level, about your time in Moscow? Something that kind of stays with you? Outside of the training stuff, maybe, <laughs> like the details you, of the training. You, you love the answer. What? You will love the answer. Uh <laughs> <laughs> the, I I was uh, I, guess. Yeah. I I was given tickets to two uh, performances by Americans. Uh, there was a theater troupe that uh, played Our Town, uh, and then there was this I forget the name of the guy, but uh, uh, you, you may not be old enough. Have you ever watched Hee Haw? Uh, maybe. Uh, there was a it was a country music show, real kitschy, but. Uh, the star of Hee Haw uh, was giving a, a concert in Moscow. Concert. And, I, and I guarantee you at least half the audience were KGB. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. And at the other end, the uh, uh, um, the, the, the opposite of, uh, of, a, of a highlight was my visit to the, uh, to, to my, to the mausoleum where Lenin hmm. uh, is, is still still today there there was so there was a nothing you know he, he was he was my hero but he he looked like a wax figure yeah. and 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 you walk by there there was nothing in, inspirational not not there was not a religious experience nothing it was it was a big old nothing is that did did your faith and belief in communism start to crumble at some point here? Is no. that around, that was still pretty strong? No. What I did notice that uh, the standard of living in, in, in Moscow was significantly lower than in East Germany. The, uh, uh, the, in the supermarkets, uh, you, could, you could expect uh, with reliability that you can find uh, canned fish and uh, mineral water. Everything else was whatever. And if you saw a line at a store, you just line up. You don't even ask what they have because if you don't like it, somebody else will. It it was it it was uh, not poverty, but it was close to poverty. There were a lot of drunken men in the streets. And uh, this is the eighties. No, this is the late seventies. Late seventies, mid to late seventies, and uh, and also the they had these high rise apartment buildings that looked pretty good. From the front, but you went into the backyard. Yeah. Ouch! You know. Yeah, you're muddy. describing my childhood here. Okay. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, but it's interesting, even even with a professor, even with everything else, um, it's interesting because I think the standard of living was much lower. You're yeah. right, even in Moscow. Yeah, absolutely was. The the one thing that they always had, at least in my days, was to, in those two years, there was always fresh bread in the bulletinayas. Yeah. Always. Yeah. That's probably one of the memories I have of childhood is, well, you're hungry a lot, but when you eat is bread. Yeah. It, and the bread was so, good. It was good. Yeah. I mean, I don't, I, I actually wonder, I wonder how good it was, but I remember it being incredibly good. To, to me, it was 
really good. And, and you know, you had it from white to very dark and, yeah. and all the varieties. The other thing that was good was um, if you knew where to get it, Stolichnaya yeah. was four rubles. <laughs> Not only is it good vodka, but it's uh, cheap vodka. I like it. Yeah, but you had to know where, the, you know, this would be like holes in the wall someplace. Well, I think a lot of the way they operate, I, don't, I wonder if East Germany is this way, but a lot of the ways that Moscow operates is you kind of, you had to know. Yes. Like there's a very kind of, um, if you make the right friends, if you give money to the right guy, the guy, the friend of the friend of the friend is going to hook you up. And this, there's a culture that this is how you work around a, a very big bureaucracy. Underground economy. Yeah, underground yeah. economy. Yeah. Uh -huh. You have to, which is a boy, um, such a stark contrast between, between that and the United States, the capitalist system. Um, yeah, that was a very big culture shock to me. <laughs> to, to understand yeah. the the different way, the different fundamentally different way of life, but the interesting thing is, um, human nature pervades both systems, and there is something about the Russian system that reveals human nature more intensely because of the underground nature of it, because you get to deal with greed and trust and all those kinds of things. In the United States, there is much more power to the rule of law. So there's rules right. and people follow those rules. Right. They have to break the rules nonstop. Well, in, in, in East Germany and Russia, I believe uh, theft, if you could get away with it, was part of your economic activity. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I have a friend uh, you know, who, who I went to uh, school with uh, up until my fourth year and uh, we reconnected and he told me how he survived. You know, he would you know, he would just uh, steal stuff and then sell it and or trade it. <laughs> yeah, theft. I mean, it's a relative concept. <laughs> no. You are taking stuff. Bri uh, bribery, all those kinds of things. People, you know, um, corruption, you know, it's a relative term. No, I'm just kidding. I mean, it is. You have to work around the giant bureaucracy about the... Right. Uh, the giant corruption, corruption builds on top of corruption and it just becomes this giant yep. system that's unstable, uh, as you talked about. One last word. Yes. The two years in Moscow taught me how to be alone. I had no social interaction. Not with friends, not with women, not... No. With... I was, the only interaction I had was with the folks that trained me. So I was alone. It was a lonely two years. For a person who, who loves love, yes, that but difficult? Yes, but that prepared me for my first year and first and second year in the United States because I could not interact socially without giving away that something was wrong with me. I had to learn how to be an American. They didn't teach me in Moscow. They couldn't. They didn't. So you, for the first two years in uh, mm -hmm. in America, you had to kind of listen more than talk. Oh, you, you bet. The very first year, I, I couldn't even work because I had to acquire the docu documents, uh, a social security card and a, and a driver's license uh, to get a job. And then when I had the job, uh, I, I worked as a bike messenger. Uh, that gave me a good opportunity to listen as, as you know, uh, because these people, they, they weren't real, very curious about me. What was your name in East Germany? What was your name in yeah. Moscow? Yeah. What was your name in America? 
Okay, so my the name I was given at birth is Albrecht Dietrich. Nobody can. So sexy when you speak in German. <laughs> <the> German accent. <laughs> I hate I hated that name, the Albrecht. I didn't like it. It was it was very rarely used. Uh, my mother named me after a famous German painter, Albrecht de Dürer. My cover name in, in Moscow was known as Dita, and in, and and in the, in the United States, I became Jack Barsky. In between, I used a whole bunch of other names uh, that uh, were associated with uh, false passports that uh, uh, I used. Uh, one of the names uh, and I remember is William Dyson because that is the name that was on the Canadian passport I used to enter the United States. So how did you enter the United States? Can we take the journey from Moscow to the United States? Yeah. What was the assignment? What was the what was that leap? What was like what uh just one 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 thing in between. I had a th three months practice trip to to uh Canada. Mm -hmm. That was that was a good idea. And I got to tell you this this one thing that happened yes, there. Please. Okay. So <laughs> Because you know the one one thing that, that that I like to tell people nowadays is the one of the secrets to happiness is the ability to make fun of the worst situations that you're in. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> you see the humor. Yes. Okay. So here's come here comes something quite humorous in hindsight, at least. <laughs> uh, one of my uh, the tasks that I had in, in in Canada was to acquire a birth certificate, uh, with the name uh, the name was Henry Van Randall who was born someplace in California, and I was supposed to, uh, you know, write a little letter saying, I'm Henry Van Randall, please send me a copy of my birth certificate, the fee is enclosed. And uh, and and I, uh, I lived in a small hotel, so the return address, it wasn't visible that it was a hotel, that was important. So, and it took like three weeks, and I get nothing, four weeks, I get nothing, Eventually, I got annoyed, and I, 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 I mustered the courage to call them up from a cell, from a payphone. I called up the office registrar, whatever they were called, in this in, in this town in California, and, and I and I yelled at them. I said, "You got my money? Where's my birth certificate?" Well, a couple of weeks later, it came. So I see the envelope. This is the Henry Van Randall. Yes, I had prepared the. Uh, caretakers of the um, of the hotel to that I'm expecting a letter from my friend. So I went up to my room, I opened it, and I was like, "Yes, yes, this is a success." And <laughs> and I opened this thing, and it was it was a copy of a birth certificate, but it was stamped with big letters across in red, "Deceased." Now think about it. So here's a dead people who was asking for <laughs> that person who was asking for a small birth certificate. Uh, <laughs> I I had the presence of mind to to leave. Okay, yeah. I went to a couple of other cities. I should have left the country, uh, but I know that the Royal Mounted Police was following me. I, I was given that information by the FBI later on, the, and they were. But you were able to. Yes. Oh, you were able to at least suspect that at the time. I through the the the. the, the I, I knew that. Know? I knew that. There was trouble, so I, I, my counter surveillance uh, route SDR. Didn't, didn't yes didn't discover anything, so I kept on going. Uh, I had to supposed to I was supposed to visit two more cities, and uh, they were always one step behind. What 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 is interesting to me is that they didn't catch me on the way out. You have to show your passport to the airline. 
I mean, I, I, I was known by name. I would then the path because I had to give that to the hotel, right? Uh, and I and I escaped with uh, so how would they by a hair. They, they, would, they, they would have to keep you on a list, right? Yeah, <clears throat> yeah, that's interesting. But that requires like um, a good computerized, updated system yeah, to and track of that stuff. This was Swiss Air, so. Well, you got lucky. Yeah, <laughs> part of life is luck. You bet. So, so, and and uh, other than that, the the trip to uh, uh, Canada was a, a big success because it it uh, gave me the culture shock hmm. that that I needed to not be blown out of out of the water and when I get get to the United States. So you hopped a few places in Canada. Yeah. And then Swiss Air. I even had a I even had a relationship with a young lady, uh, Canadian, <clears throat> French Canadian, regular Canadian, French Canadian, and she uh, she gave me uh, a book, uh, Winnie the Pooh, because we went to see the movie, and then she wrote the dedication. She says to the nicest German I've ever met. Was she lying? <laughs> no. <laughs> or you don't know. Maybe. <laughs> uh, speaking of uh, spycraft, and that. That led to heartbreak too. No, that was uh, sexual. I was not at that point ready uh, for love. No, ready to return to I, that old. Uh, I, well, and I was I was already already married in Germany. Okay, yes. that woman I loved. We should return to this. Yeah. <laughs> so Swiss Air, where did you land in the United States? Oh, when I came, where did I land? I, I an American Airlines uh, flight from Mexico City to uh, Toronto, but they made me deplane in Chicago. Mm -hmm. I have no idea. I think this was over engineering. That didn't make any sense to me. You know, wh why can't the Canadian just take a take a flight from Mexico City? I, I don't with this stopover. This kind of nonsense. Yeah, but okay. But nevertheless, that was it, and then you yeah. landed in Chicago, right? And, and tell me the story in America. What was the day-to-day -day life? Now this is now you're a spy. You're no, 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 no. I got to tell you another funny story. Yes. <laughs> so it's, it's another. Uh, uh, there's two things that happened that uh, could have uh, ended my sp career as a spy right then and there. So I'm. Uh, so I'm. I'm arriving in in um, the, uh, Chicago in the evening. It's already dark. Uh, I. I had no idea what kind of a hotel to take, and you know, I picked one out of a uh, out of uh, Yellow Pages and then got a taxi. When I gave him the address, he looked at me like a little funny. You know, mm -hmm. Whatever, what do I know? You know, just keep on going. I need to get I need to get sleep because I was extremely uh, tense. Mm -hmm. You know, having gone through customs and border control. So, and uh, we were going in the southern direction, and I noticed that the um, neighborhoods were, were became less and less inviting. Didn't, didn't know what that meant either. And I get uh, into the hotel. It was a five-story brownstone, and something else looked funny. So the reception desk was uh, protected by plexiglass. Mm -hmm. Not having enough background i didn't know that this was unusual because I, all i knew that there was a lot of crime in the united states so i thought maybe every hotel was like that so i go up into my room and uh, drink a half a bottle of uh johnny walker red because as, I as one does yeah <laughs> just, 
because <laughs> I was so damn tense, I just wanted to sleep. I wanted yeah. to get into a coma, which I did. And, yes. And the and next day I woke up with a head that was twice as big as, felt twice as big. Uh, but, you know, I was prepared. I had aspirin with me, so I killed the headache and went, went outside to see if I can get something to eat. And uh, so I was right smack in, in the middle of the south side of Chicago. I didn't know that the south side of Chicago existed. I found later, I found out where I was. So it was time to go very quickly. <laughs> Uh, go up there, and at that point, I decided I would uh, uh, I would register uh, at the next hotel on the Jack Barsky. Mm -hmm. So I went to the bathroom and I tried to kill kill off uh, uh, Mr. Dyson by burning his passport. Um, unfortunately, I was not trained in how to train passport, uh, how to how to destroy passports. Uh, so I tried to burn it. And these things are flame retardant, and uh, <laughs> it created a cloud of smoke. And I'm looking up there, and there's a smoke detector. Yeah. Oh no. Okay. So presence of mind, I threw this thing in the toilet, and then then took out a pair of scissors and cut it into small pieces and flushed it down. Yeah. If that smoke alarm goes off, I'm busted. Yeah. Right. If somebody, if if some some criminal steals, I had six thousand dollars on me in cash. Uh, steals either my passport or my or my money or both. I don't know what to do. Yeah, you can't go to the authorities. You can't do. There anything. weren't there weren't any Russian the Soviets in Chicago. Do you have any contacts? No, inside there, the there was no there was no um, there was no plan B for Chicago at all. That, that's an oversight. I, I shouldn't I shouldn't have gone to Chicago. They they could have uh, shipped me into. Uh, um, uh, San Francisco or Washington D.C. because both of them had Soviets. Mm -hmm. My end goal was uh, uh, was to go to to, to New York. Fine, uh, you know I would have been a really really uh, dangerous agent if I had gone back and worked with the KGB because I could have told them all the things how to do it right. Right. So in in that sense, there is some. Given the scale of the KGB, there is uh, some incompetence in this. Some. A lot of incompetence. Uh, with regard to preparing me to be an American, is, it was almost total incompetence. And that, do you think that's representative of the way they operate? Is uh, there's an incompetence like to the uh, logistics, to the yeah. st strategies involved, all that kind of stuff? Yeah, they, none of these guys had operated as illegals. They they were outsiders to American society. They had interaction with Americans, and uh, but they all lived in you know in New York. They lived in a compound uh, in in northern Manhattan where they all lived together with their families, and and they most of the time they spent uh, interacting with with themselves with their own people at work. So, so they, they really didn't integrate well. They did not know what it's like to be an American to have a job, to to you know live like an American. They didn't know it. It's interesting that KGB didn't put a, a high value to that kind of integration. They didn't know what they didn't know. Yeah. And and by the way, this was mutual. Do you think the CIA had, had uh, good knowledge of the Russian culture? Uh-uh. Same thing. And so uh, there was a lot of lack of understanding because good, good intelligence could have uh, possibly avoided some of the uh, high tension that uh, situations that we had when, when in the 80s we got close to nuclear war. So good intelligence would be integrating yourself in society yes. much, much deeper. And understanding that Ronald Reagan was not a warmonger, 
but he was talking about the end times because he was a, a Christian. But then that kind of integration can be dangerous because you start to question the propaganda, the narratives that on which the KGB is built, on oh, yeah. which the CIA and, is built. And, and, and then they, they, have all, they always have had the options of ignoring the intelligence that they're getting, right? Yeah. Well, well, let me ask you this question sort of to jump around. There's a lot of conspiracy theories in this, um, in this current climate, I mean, throughout history, but now especially. And some of the conspiracy theories put a lot of power in the hands of the intelligence agencies like CIA, FSB, Mossad, uh, MI6. They're basically, the conspiracy theories go that they control the powerful people in this world and are able to thereby uh, manipulate those powerful people and manipulate the populace in order to deliver different kinds of messages and so on. Given your experience with this kind of tension between competence and malevolence, would you say there's some truth to those conspiracy theories? Not one way. I think I think there is there's collusion, there's collaboration, but I would think that, uh, like for instance, uh, uh, some folks in the CIA and the FBI are, are being used by the ones that are really in power. Power is money. Power is wealth. I know power it is can not... Go the other, it can go both directions. You can acquire wealth first, which leads you to power, or you can acquire power first. Yeah, uh, the, power, power is also knowledge, I understand, and, and, uh, and, uh, and a position in the society, in the military, or in intelligence. But I, I don't think it's a straight one way that all the intelligence agencies control the powerful people in their country. You see what's happening in Russia. I mean, Putin dominates his intelligence agencies, right? Well, uh, so the question is which way the direction goes, but you're saying that there is, um, it's not one way flow of power. I would think so. Uh, and, and, I also believe it exists, but it's not as prevalent as, you know, not every conspiracy theory uh, pans out, and most of them don't. They're just damn rumors, but that doesn't mean they don't exist. I guarantee you they, they exist. There's collusion, there's people getting together, and, and uh, not necessarily uh, preparing a specific action, but more sort of a, a plan to go forward and maintain the position or even, you know, uh, uh, strengthen the position that they already have. So KGB, but we can generalize FSB, CIA. Do you think a KGB agent would kill someone against international law if they were ordered to do so? So we talked about they did. They did, uh, and there's uh, there's a, f a famous uh, case of uh, one. Uh, uh, but I think it's Vasily Kuklov who defected, he was a killer, he was a train killer, and he had, had uh, done assassinations in other countries. He was sent to West Germany to kill a defector, a KGB defector, and he decided not to do it. He, he talked to the guy and he said, I'm supposed to kill you, I'm not. And then, then he eventually wound up in the United States. I have a connection to this fellow because the KGB once asked me to go to California and see if the guy still lives and works there. And uh, we, uh, I found him and we looked at each other. So there was an active KGB agent 
looking at a man that he didn't know was the, the, the KGB defector, looking at each other. Neither one knew who the other one was. I, I found out later. But he was able to survive. Yes. And, you know, there, there, there have been assassinations, n not, not a lot. And, uh, you know, that... You know, that we know of. A good point. This is very difficult. Uh, the, 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 the question is, how many lines are intelligence agencies able, willing to cross to attain, <sighs> to achieve the goal? I, I, I think none of these agencies have the ultimate line. I, I think eventually they, the last line will be crossed if they believe it's necessary. Well, I think you can justify a lot of things, especially in this modern world with nuclear weapons, that you can justify yeah, that you're saving yeah, the world, yeah. actually. Let me ask a few difficult questions, and we'll jump back to your time in America, but Vladimir Putin has been accused of ordering the poisoning and assassination of several people, including Alexander Levitnenko, early on, all the way to Alexei Navalny. Do you think these accusations are grounded in truth? And we will return to a couple more questions, maybe, about Vladimir Putin's early days in the KGB, which would be interesting. Yeah, there, there's, a, there's a phrase that I like to uh, say in, in response, it's called plausible deniability. I don't think Putin gave a direct command to say, do that. He would just maybe muse. It would be nice if something were to happen. And then somebody picks it up and does it. Is there, can you steel man the case that uh, Putin did not have direct or indirect involvement oh, who, with this? Who, who, who would know? Who would know? You know, just... The, well, the, the international, the reputation, perhaps... Um, perhaps catalyzed by Putin himself, is that he is the kind of person that would directly or indirectly make those orders. Perhaps the case there is he's somebody to be feared, and thereby you yeah, want that oh yeah, sure. out there. Uh, but the act itself, uh, it, it, the 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 poisoning of uh, Litvinenko and, uh, oh, and then the, the assassination of the Bulgarian uh, Markov mm -hmm. and with, a, with the umbrella, and and they all di directly traced back to Russian uh, Soviet intelligence, uh, and so that's enough to be feared, right? Um, it, my answer that I gave you is an educated guess. You know, I, I I can't pretend to know this for sure, but it, it's frustrating to me because there's a lot of people listening to this would say, would even uh, sort of would chuckle at the naive nature of the question. But if you actually keep an open mind, you have to understand what is the way that intelligence agencies function? Is it possible to the head of an intelligence agency not to make direct orders of that kind? Where there's a distributed- No, the head of the intelligence agency would most likely give the order. Even though it's but, compartmentalized. Yeah, but, but, uh, but not the, the head of state. Not maybe not the head of state. Although uh, in the case, this is the case in the United States as well, but certainly is the case in Russia, there are close relationships between the head of the FSB and the GRU and uh -huh. personal relationships, not just even. The, the, the head of the FSB who is now in jail? 
there's uh, interesting details, especially uh, coming out mm -hmm. recently around the war in Ukraine. So let me actually ask about the war in Ukraine. All right. What is your analysis of the war in Ukraine from 2014 to the full-on invasion of Ukraine by Russia in 2022, in February 2022? What, um, there's many questions we could ask. One is, what are the sins of the governments involved? What are the sins of Russia, Ukraine, America, China? Are those sins comparable? Who are the good guys and the bad guys? That was more than one question now. <clears throat> Let me just uh, uh, give you my the basics about this. Savvy observers saw this coming. They were a very small minority. Uh, because Vladimir Putin was pretty open about what he told the world his mission was, was the, the reestablishment of a strong Russia, the reestablishment of something like the, the Russian Empire to unite all the Russian-speaking uh, uh, people under uh, one country, and uh, the world ignored him. I mean, he was open. Uh, it was, it was at, a, at a conference in, in, in France, I believe, when it, we, we set this out, out in the open. Uh, and then what we had uh, in the United States, we had wishful, wishful thinking. You know, Obama had this reset with Russia. You know, we all get friendly. And then when, when uh, uh, Putin invaded uh, Crimea, we did nothing. So and it and it just escalated slowly but surely. It was pretty clear, and they said uh, it was I think two years ago, there was an essay published by uh, Putin. Whether he wrote it or not doesn't matter, but that was also out in public where he was again quite clear what he was going to do. Now, how do you do this with force? And uh, the, and the the sins committed by the American government was that we ignored it. We were engaged in wishful thinking, and we didn't stop it with sanctions before the shooting started. To push back, I don't think you're fully describing. You are describing the sins of the Russian government and Putin. I don't think you're fully describing the sins of the American government here, because not only didn't. You're doing. You're describing the miscalculation. So not only did they not pressure correctly with sanctions and so on, and 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 clearly uh, respond to the actual statements and the essays and the words spoken. I know where you're going, but keep but, on speaking. Yes, but they also at the same time pressured pressured Russia, and they also, as as Putin himself said, sort of there's a rat, and they pushed the rat towards the corner by expanding NATO mm -hmm. and- uh, And arming Ukraine. And uh, well, the, the military industrial complex mm -hmm. is Agreed. a machine that, uh, that led us, um, and I think a lot of younger people, I mean, when I came to this country, and this is the country I love, I lived through 9-11. Mm -hmm. I lived through the full roller coaster of emotion. Yeah. I'm a, at that time, before that and after, was a proud American. I went through the whole roller coaster of uh, being sold, a, I would say, 
a lie about the reason to invade Iraq and uh, even Afghanistan. And I got to live through understanding of this military industrial complex that leads to the expansion of empires, of the delusion that we have in the populace, in, in the government, that convinces us that we are the good guys and somehow uh-huh. with military force, we can instill our values, instill happiness, the yeah. pursuit of happiness, that all men are created equal, these ideas in, into other lands. And we can do so with drones, and we can do so mm-hmm. with weapons, and we could do so without significant cost to our own, yeah. from our own pockets. And so this idea, this machine, doesn't just apply to Afghanistan and Iraq. It doesn't just apply to Yemen and Syria. It doesn't just apply to China. It also applies to Ukraine. It also applies to Russia. Agreed. Two thoughts, if I may. Uh, First of all, one does not hear the term military-industrial complex in the public discourse these days. Eisenhower warned about it. Eisenhower was a capitalist. He was the president of the United States. Uh, So... It, it exists, and it is very powerful. The more weapons you can sell, uh, the more you have to replace them or send over, you have to replace them. So, yes. Uh, the the other thing is uh, there's also a uh, messianic streak uh, uh, that uh, um, powers American foreign policy. We want to make the world just like us. Why don't they get it? Because they don't want to. It's almost like... It's not communism, but it's a, it's a very similar romantic idea that we can make the world and fashion the world the way we are. And, and, and that's the romantic side and the sort of honest side, but it doesn't work. It, should, it, it failed every time, right? You know, Afghanistan is a royal mess and was, would never become a functioning democracy. I don't know if, uh, if Ukraine can become a functioning democracy. So, well, I don't know if American weapons can help Ukraine become a functional democracy. I, yeah, absolutely right. But there's a huge amount of interest in seeing the world in black and white and selling the story of the world as black and white that Ukraine is the symbol of democracy in this East Eastern European world. And Russia is the symbol of authoritarian dictatorship. And the story is not so simple as, as, as many indices show. Ukraine and Russia are the number one and the number two most corrupt countries yeah. in Europe. They're two peas in a pod. One is bigger and, and, and one is, in this case, the aggressor. Now, you know, two peas, the, the aggressor is still ultimately responsible and, and the person that throws the first punch. Now, there's a lot of people going to disagree where the oh, first yeah. punch came from. Yeah, sure. But there is there is magnitude. Yes, and 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 the struggle by Ukraine for its sovereignty stretches back to the beginning of the 20th century. It stretches back even further than that. But there's been the Ukrainian people are proud people, and they've been in many cases tortured by those that sit in the Kremlin throughout oh, yeah. the 20th century. The, the, the famine in the, in the early 30s. And it's always, it's never the middle class and the upper class that suffer. It's always yeah. the lower classes, the peasants right. in that time. That This history stretches back far. 
And this is yet another manifestation of that. And um, there's a lot of interest to play. China watches closely. Russia, America watches closely. And there's an extra caveat here that there's nuclear weapons at play as well. Exactly. And it's what this is. Uh, the situation is as, uh, as dangerous as I have uh, lived through in my entire life, I believe. And bec because it's not necessarily at the highest point of escalation, but it will be, in my view, a protracted crisis. And the longer that crisis lasts, the more of a chance there is of an accident. Yeah. One rocket. Yeah. There seems to be a strong incentive to uh, prolong, to do siege mm -hmm. tactics, to prolong this conflict over perhaps many years, which is terrifying to think about. Yeah. Uh, and over that, one a single rocket can lead to, given that there's leaders that might not, that might be losing their mind. Yeah. And Ukraine is not part of NATO. The thing I'm really afraid of is that somebody might think it's a good idea, but for Russia, so Putin might think it's a good idea for Russia to send a message by launching a nuke against Ukraine mm -hmm. because they're not part of NATO. Mm -hmm. So surely the West is not going to respond. What is the West going to do? Yeah. If, uh, if Russia nukes Ukraine to send a message? I don't know if anyone knows the answer to that question, but it's a terrifying question. And and I don't know the exact protocol uh, that needs to be followed to to launch a nuclear strike from 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 NATO's end because we have several countries in NATO that have nuclear weapons. So for let's say for France to fire a nuke, does the United States have to agree? Or how does, I don't know how that works. I don't know if anyone knows how that works. Okay. Yeah, I worry. Now we have different, very kind of anecdotal perspectives on these things, but if the people I've interacted with in the DOD, Department of Defense, in the military, there is a compartmentalization. There is a bureaucracy. And within that giant bureaucracy, there's incompetence. We'd like to think <laughs> yeah. that there is like really well organized for really important things there's going to be the best of the best in the world that's going to execute mm. on the correct decisions, both geopolitically, militarily, all that kind of stuff. And I've seen enough to know that competence at any level of government, at any level of the military is not guaranteed. Let's go back to the law of hierarchy. The the, the government is, is, is the biggest hierarchy there is. And so invariably, Politicians find their way to the top, and once you have politics and uh, um, dictating uh, substantive decisions, they they're going to be weak or wrong. It's I don't I don't know how how this could work any other way. There, well, right now we have some functional idiots in in the central United States government. Well, let me because you did you said that um, I think elsewhere you said that Putin was not a good KGB agent. That's right. A mediocre one, but is an excellent politician. Yeah, and a good organizer. He was known as a really, really good organizer. When when uh, Yeltsin hired him as uh, uh, prime minister, he he cleaned up the mess to because Yeltsin was a 
under, under Yeltsin, Russia deteriorated tremendously, and it became sort of a, a mix of an oligarchy and a, and a criminal enterprise and chaotic. So he had skills that made him a good executive. Oh, absolutely. Now let's go back to him as a KGB agent. He was a KGB agent. I mean, uh, you know, according to him, once a KGB agent, always a KGB agent. But sixteen years, let's say something like this. Uh, what do you think about f from your experience? Uh, now you're maybe the uh, same age as him, approximately the same age as him. He's a little younger. A little younger. Yeah. What do you think about the KGB experience he had made him the man he is? What aspect of that, from your own experience, yeah, well, how much that does that define you, who you are, how you think about the world, how you analyze uh, the geopolitics of the world, how you analyze human nature? Now, I got to tell you one thing. He, he had a different type of training than I did. Mine was one-on-one, -on -one, and he went, to school, so to speak. So, <laughs> classroom so, training, <laughs> right? Uh, so, um, but but uh, fundamentally, he he was not a top agent. And this is very simple. To uh, there's only one one thing you need to know. He he knows German pretty well. So he where was he deployed? In East Germany, not in West Germany, not in Switzerland, not in Austria. That's where they sent the best, right? One would think, generally. We're learning here, right? So this is your classification of where they send the best. You know, there's people classify all kinds of stuff, like uh, what is the best university in the world, what is the best football team in the world. Yeah. And you you start to get a sense. The good guys get sent. The the, the best athletes get sent to. Uh, well, we can disagree on this, but what the football team is. You know, <laughs> but you have a sense, and you're yeah. saying that the best agents would have been sent. One to would West think Germany. so. Now, th this is not for a forcing argument, but. Yeah. Uh, uh, I also have it from from a word from the horse's mouth. Uh, Which horse? Uh, <laughs> Ole, I mean, o what kind of horse? O What's o the breed of the horse? Oleg Kalugin. Uh, you you know who Oleg Kalugin yes. is, and he's still he's still alive. He was at one point uh, the head of counterintelligence for the first directorate espionage, right? And Putin was in the first directorate and reported to Kalugin for a while. And Oleg told me to my face that Oleg was not an impressive uh, agent trainee that, or agent. Uh, that Vladimir Putin was not impressive. Not impressive at all. Now, he's biased, given this current situation. In, in well, yeah, you know, he, he could still make it up because he had this big ruckus when, when he was in parliament and called, called Putin a war criminal about yeah. the uh, war in Serbia. Uh, not only could he make it up, I wouldn't trust his analysis. <laughs> I mean, I, I have to, you know, when, when people, mm. I've been working very hard even before this war to try to understand objective analysis of all, all the parties involved. Mm. You have to really keep an open mind here to see clearly, to understand if you are to try to help in some way make a better world, uh, in this case, stop this war. Yeah. Or have, all the countries involved flourish, bring out the best of the people, remove the corruption and the greed and the destructive aspects of the governments and let the people flourish. For all of that, you have to put all the biases aside, all the political bickering, all the, um, I don't know, uh, all the biased analysis. 
and there's there's a lot of propaganda that says that in fact Putin was a was a good agent. Mm -hmm. How else would he rise to the ranks, right? Because he he was a good politician, and uh, and he made a lot of good connections and with within the KGB. Allow me to say something. You just. Uh, you just taught me a lesson, mm -hmm. and 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 the lesson uh, I sh I should have figured out myself because I I keep on telling people that in the intelligence world you never know the truth one hundred percent. So when you said Oleg could make that up, of course he could have. Uh, but you get to a point where you you're forced to make a decision or have an opinion, and then you use your best educated guess. Yes. So I'm I'm going to take the certainty of the statement that I made back. Yes. Because you, it's quite possible that you're right. Well, what I've noticed about Vladimir Putin, and this is true about, for example, Donald Trump and all those kinds of um, divisive figures, that some for some reason people's opinion on the details of those people are very sticky. Once you decide this is a bad guy, yeah. There's a, like a black hole, and people are not able to think like one act yeah. at a time. You don't have to like that doesn't somehow justify this. This somehow doesn't uh, remove all the evil things that are done. But you can analyze clearly I, each of the actions. And it, to me, it is interesting to to see how did this man yeah. rise through the ranks. Now you're saying that to be a KGB agent, there's a lot of skills involved. Uh, and perhaps raw um, technical skill of spycraft is perhaps not related to the skill of raising, rising through the ranks. Right. And you're saying as a, as a politician, but, he was good at rising. But lying and influencing uh, that is something that uh, that is significant as a significant uh, talent uh, and, and ability that an agent must have. That helps you. Uh, as a politician. Continuing the kind of thread of the role of KGB in defining the the heart, soul, and mind of Vladimir Putin. Let me return to Yuri Bezmenov, who was a Soviet KGB agent that wrote a four-step framework for ideological subversion on a national scale as practiced by the Soviet Union. So the the four... Steps are demoralization, destabilization, crisis, and normalization. He had a lot of other kind of systematic ways of describing this kind of stuff. So can you speak to some of these ideas about the systematic, large-scale, ideological subversion goals of the KGB? Is there truth to that kind of, those ideas? Yes, but uh, I... I think I already sort of mentioned it. I think Bezmenov was a fraud, and I have, I have again. Can you elaborate? Good, good, good arguments. Yes. Let's put it this way. Uh, first of all, uh, we we know that uh, the KGB was involved in active measures, which is, you know, um, you can call it uh, uh, fake news. Yeah. Uh, seeding fake news into. In the countries that are your adversaries, and and the Russians have been doing this uh, lately by meddling in our election and and focusing on the left and the right fringe and influencing them to become more left and no more right. So that, and uh, and Vasily Mitrokin, 
uh, has, a, has an, in, in one of his books, uh, he has a whole chapter about active measures. Okay, so what he has to say about the department, and I forgot what department that was, was the one department that was the least desirable for KGB agents, because this, these were desk jobs for people who had to come up with uh, fake stories that, uh, in countries where they didn't quite know too much about the country. Now, there were some successes, like one of the... The two uh, most famous successes uh, that I'm aware of is, is that uh, uh, the canard that the AIDS virus was concocted in a CIA lab. Uh, so a lot of people around the world believe that. And the other one was that uh, um, J. Edgar Hoover was a secret cross-dresser. Cross-dresser. <laughs> that, that, was, that, that is still known by a lot of Americans who are of a certain age that this was the truth. But uh, Mitrokin actually traces it back to a story that was placed in a sort of left-wing but close to mainstream uh, French magazine, and it was then taken, taken up by uh, more um, uh, you know, larger uh, newspapers and, and well-established papers. So, so they had some successes, but this kind of a uh, um, massive, well uh, thought out campaign to destabilize the United States—I don't believe the, the KGB was capable of doing that. Mitrokin seems to agree with me. I was trained. I would think, you know, I was one of the crown jewels of the agents. One would think that they used the best that they had. To, to, to help me how to become an American, and they didn't have a clue. So how do they, if you don't know how a country operates, how do you come up with with this this this, this kind of a very detailed uh, long-term plan that's that's also timed, you know, two years this and one year that and all that? Yeah, so we should, we should actually just clarify. So he, he has this whole idea that there's uh, 15 to 20 years are needed for demoralization, yeah. um, where you're um, you're basically infiltrating a country from a young or people from a young age, manipulating their mind. You're destabilizing them. That's the second step that takes two to five years. You uh, target the country's foreign relations, defense, and economy. You create a crisis artificially, and then you normalize it as as if it uh, always was this way. So it's basically saying that the KGB is capable of at scale uh, over many mm, years no. manipulate an entire population of people. Right. And this is kind of um, there's a lot of people that believe in conspiracy theories that are amenable to this kind of idea. Now. My own experience is that there is, in fact, just a giant amount of incompetence, and that this is something that's actually very difficult to pull off. Because yes, it's incredibly, um, incredibly difficult to achieve this kind of manipulation. I think it would it would it would require, first of all, not much bureaucracy, not much slowing down. You have to have incredible, in the modern world, digital systems that are able to do surveillance, manipulation. There has to be a strategy that is carried out in secrecy across a huge number of people yes. effectively that also requires you hire the best people in the world. And I think 
it's difficult to execute on this kind of thing with the if you compartmentalize because there has to be great collaboration there has to be a great where, yes. where there's a unified vision coordination co and coordination across multiple groups there has to be i mean there is it's very difficult to do now nevertheless especially with technology this becomes easier and easier so the bar yeah, becomes yeah. lower and lower to achieve mass surveillance becomes easier and easier and easier cool. uh, mass manipulation through platforms because we're now digitally connected you can now do that kind of manipulation so it becomes more and more realistic that you could do this kind of thing but uh, you're saying that no intelligence first of all intelligence is hard yeah. and to do it at scale and to do it well and to do it um in a way that it's also not just collecting information about the populace but manipulating the populace is very very difficult Right now, let me give you an, another argument why I think that Bezmanov was a fraud. Uh, I mean, I already have I, I have uh, uh, Matrokin on my side, and and my personal observation of uh, the incompetence that uh, that I witnessed. I mean, they really, really didn't know what they didn't know. So now Bezmanov was KGB. Where was he stationed? In India. He he was a low-level agent in India. And I told you the one thing that the KGB was really good was at was compartmentalization. How does Bezmanov in India find out about this massive plan that should have been super secret, right? He made it up. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah. And and you know why he got away with it? Because Americans eat that up. Because it's not our fault. It's like the, the damn Russians that doing do, doing all that that bad stuff. Speaking of the damn Russians doing all that bad stuff, you know about the Internet Research Agency. Mm -hmm. They have been doing quite a bit of damage. And uh, uh, I I'm now familiar with the world of uh, enhanced artificial persons. These are the avatars on Facebook and Twitter and you know so forth that uh, look like real people, mm -hmm. and uh, and uh, and there, there are quite a few of them. And and I have a good friend who operates in in that realm, and uh, you know he he uses, for instance, facial rec recognition when he uh, 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 thinks that uh, there's a suspicious character, say on LinkedIn or or on Facebook. And very often he finds out, yeah, that that, that person exists, but it's not the person who uh, it pretends to be. So basically, detecting the artificial, yes, the enhanced artificial, yes. People. But but he he can also make them. You, right. you think it, the United it goes States hand in hand? Yeah, the United States doesn't do it. We do it too. But uh, well, this is to push back against your pushback, right? <laughs> yeah, Bezmanov might be a fraud. Uh huh. But is it possible, especially in the modern age, that there is these kind of large-scale systematic operation? Wouldn't you, as a government, more so, uh, that's investing billions of dollars into military equipment, um, in, in in a world that's more and more clearly going to be defined by uh, cyber war mm -hmm. versus uh, hot war? Right. Wouldn't you start to have serious meetings, large amounts of hires yeah. that are working at how do we manipulate yeah. the information flow? Mm -hmm. How do we manipulate the minds of the populace? Mm -hmm. How do we sell them a narrative? Um, so 
even though he might have been making up a story because people eat it up, could it speak to some deep truth that's actually different than the the truth you came up in as a KGB agent? Oh, I, I agree with you 100%. It's much easier when, uh, you know, all you need is, is, is an army of nerds who also no know. Offense. Mm? No offense. No offense to nerds. That's a, a term of endearment I yes, use. I love, love. I love nerds. I I used to be one myself, so. uh, but anyway, once a nerd, always a nerd. So, you know. <laughs> uh, so what I was going to say here is, all uh, you need is an army of nerds, and and what, but also uh, experts in the culture of the target country. Okay, and and nowadays the world is different. There's a whole lot more fluidity. There's a whole lot of more people that, like, say, Russians, for instance, study in the United States, Chinese, an army of Chinese studying in, in the United States. They they have a lot more knowledge of how we function than the KGB did, mm-hmm. and it's vice versa. Uh, not as many Americans in, in, in Russia, but we have some. But in, the, the Chinese and the Russians have an advantage here. Can I ask you a question based on your experience? So, I have been talking to a lot of powerful people and <laughs> uh, some of which have uh, very close connections to in this particular conflict, uh, Ukraine and Russia, but in other places as well. I don't believe I've ever been contacted by or interacted with an intelligence agency. CIA, FSB, MI6, Mossad, I don't think I have, well, let me say explicitly, I haven't had an official conversation, which is what I assume I would have because I have nothing to hide, right? So I think there's no reason for people to be secretive. But would I, why Why is that? Would I know, am I interesting at all? How, how are people determined if they're a person of interest or not? And I guess the question, I mean, some of it I ask in a bit of a, a humorous way, but also perhaps there's truth in some of the humors. Would I know if I have ever interacted with a intelligence agency spy? Well, you you don't know that you haven't been contacted, uh, but uh, but uh, certainly not. Uh, I think you you never had a conversation that uh, related to intelligence in any way, shape, or form, right? Right, like where a person, another person, introduced yeah, themselves. introduced themselves or you know, becomes sort of wants to be your friend and then uh, uh, talks about these types of topics, right? Yeah, but I... <laughs> um, there's people, because because of who I'm interacting with, they're, I mean, even with, just, even with Elon Musk, mm-hmm. like if you think about Elon Musk, there's a lot of people that are, um, that are part of the conversations that happen, how do I know they're all trustworthy? They all present themselves as trustworthy. Now, again, I have nothing, so this is this is for the intelligence agencies, I have nothing to hide. Yeah. I am the same person privately as publicly, um, well-intentioned, uh, real, no, no controlled, no weird sexual stuff where you can manipulate me. <laughs> um, what no, else? No drug use. No drug use, uh-huh. no, cl- no cl- skeletons in the closet. Um, none of that kind of stuff, but you know, I don't, I don't know. I mean, just even having these conversations, you know, I tend to trust people as a default. Like, um, yeah, me too. And you start when you think, well, 
especially with some of the people I've been talking with and some of the traveling I'm doing, I'm realizing there's a, you know, there's hard men in this world. There's military, mm. there's serious suffering and there's war and there's serious people that are doing serious harm. And so you have to be careful of thinking who to trust. When a person approaches you with a smile and asks you a question, um, I, my natural inclination is that person is, is a cool person. I'll answer the question, mm -hmm. I'll become a friend. But it becomes difficult when you realize that there's um, there's things like intelligence agencies with thousands of employees. There's people that are doing major military actions that involve tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of soldiers. This is serious stuff. And so, how do I? How do you know how to operate in this world? The folks that you're interacting with uh, have a responsibility not to tell you what they shouldn't tell you, right? Right. So, and most of them probably won't. And and I'm guessing occasionally they will say, "Well, I can't go there," right? Yeah. So so what 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 you are uh, aware of is sort of public, and what you're doing is you you uh, you're collecting it and you um, you editing it to some extent. You're not you're not changing the verb the verbiage. You're, yes. You. You just uh, repeat what they say. So from that angle, you're not you don't you're not privy to any real secrets. What you uh, have possibly that could be of use is you learn to get to know the person. So I'm thinking there's a good possibility if you get the interviews uh, uh, in in the East that somebody may actually approach you and ask you what's what's your opinion. I just hope they approach me and introduce <laughs> themselves properly. I, I just, there's, yeah. a, there's a kind of, I mean, would you know, like how many uh, Russian spies are there in the United States? How many American spies are there in Russia? Do you, do you have a sense? Is it, no I idea. mean, just like with the GRU. No idea. Uh, is, it, is it possible there's like tens of thousands and we're not, or like thousands? Not, Not thousands like I used to operate. We, we were too hard to train, and we weren't that successful to begin with. But um, particularly Russians and Chinese, um, you know, both uh, governments know who is going abroad. And I guarantee you there's a lot of amateur spies. They, they're, they're being asked, you know, help us out, you know, do something yeah. for the motherland. Like and we crowdsource spying, yeah, yeah, sort of, and not not serious and, training, but yeah, and yeah. For instance, uh, this this lady, uh, I forgot her first uh, first name, Butina. She was a rank amateur. She used social media to communicate with Moscow, uh, so she had no training, but she was reasonably successful. I mean, she <laughs> she got uh, and 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 uh, um, I. The difference between, let's say, uh, uh, the current Russian intelligence and the KGB, Vladimir Putin and his uh, his henchmen uh, are okay with people being caught because, and every time I, I, I go and talk and give a talk someplace, I, I'm always asked this question, how, how, do you, how, many, how many Russian spies do you think we, we have here? Because that it scares the people, right? And Putin likes to scare people. The KGB was very solicitous of uh, of their agents. They were, you know, they 
uh, they didn't want any one of them caught, right? So that's that's a big difference. And uh, you know, <laughs> so getting caught. So for the FSB, getting caught sends a strong signal to the world that there's yeah, agents there could everywhere. be many more, and there probably are. But and uh, because also the world again, there's a whole lot more travel going on, a whole lot more interaction, studying abroad, doing business. And uh, you know, there's there will be attempts at espionage probably one every minute in this country. That doesn't mean they will be successful. No, uh, uh, but uh, there is a a cottage industry now that um, is doing quite well. That, that teaches companies how to uh, you know fortify themselves against like uh, industrial espionage or also uh, foreign actors uh, spying. It's all over the place. <laughs> yeah, as it becomes easier and easier with digital, yes. with cyber, that yes. becomes a serious, and, a very and serious we, threat. Yeah. We might wind up in a world where nobody knows anymore what's up and what's down. <laughs> if I was to have a conversation with Vladimir Putin and or Volodymyr Zelensky, is there something you would ask about the time in the KGB? the time in his past. We are, all of us, men and women, are creations of the experiences we have through yes. our life, early right. on in life and through the formative experiences, successes and failures. So- uh, Yeah, you, you just said the key words, you know, I would ask, you know, without giving away anything, you know, just being high level, your biggest success and your biggest failure. As a politician or, or no, as a KGB well, agent? We're talking in, in the realm of uh, uh, KGB. When the wall came down and uh, he was in, in, a, in an office, a KGB office in the city of Dresden, and um, East Germans were uh, besieging uh, Stasi offices and they also dropped by the KGB office and uh, they, they were... That was pretty threatening. It looked like they would actually storm the office and get, you know, the documents and stuff like that. And uh, um, initially, the, the first demonstration uh, was uh, um, was told that uh, if if they come any closer, weapons would be used. So they disappeared, and then they came back, and uh, and. Uh, I don't know. Some somebody in that office called Berlin and said, well, "What are we going to do? Uh, can are we allowed to use force?" And the answer came back that Gorbachev said, "Absolutely not." And so this is where Putin, all of a sudden, you know, he was at one point uh, a member of the greatest, the most powerful intelligence organization in the world, and all of a sudden he was powerless, and he had to watch how you know this. This was a defeat, big one. Yeah. And and it's, it's, a, it's supposedly a powerful intelligence agency cowering, yeah, sort of crawling back into a position of weakness. And he probably promised himself never again. Russia needs to be great again. The KGB, FSB, Russia, the Russian Empire needs to rise again. And that there's a feeling for him that that's as he talks about the yeah. collapse of the Soviet Union being yeah. a great tragedy. Right. There's a feeling like that was uh, um, that was like never again. 
Yeah, and and I I believe that uh, he has a he has a strong conviction uh, that I don't know if he's religious. He, he carries a cross now, but I don't know if that what that means. But uh, somehow, but that uh, uh, it's the destiny of the Russian nation to be great, and that that is sort of that, that's whether there's it's it's de- determined by God or some some higher power. That that is very important for him. Of course, that nationalist idea is uh, one that Americans share as well, and you know it could uh, help a nation flourish. So by itself, is not necessarily a bad thing. Oh, I, it's I how agree. it manifests itself is I the agree. question. Um, well, one other thing, uh, if if I were to uh, uh, get a chat with uh, the Ukrainian uh, president, I would ask him how many lives. What 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 is the equation between giving up some land and how many lives uh, are worth this land? And that's a it's a good way to phrase the question. Of course, that question gets you killed in Ukraine. <laughs> but uh, because there's another part of that equation, which is it's not just land versus lives. It's the sovereignty, yeah. the the knowledge that you're free. And you're self-determined, and like it's not about like fighting for the particular land. It's saying we are messed up, corrupt. Uh, we have problems. It's a messy world, but it's our world. Mm. Uh, I think Stephen Crane has a, has a poem about like a man eating his own heart, and uh, he was asked. Uh, how does it taste? And he said, it's bitter, but I like it because it is bitter and because it is my heart. And that there's a sense of like, I want, this is not just about land, this is our nation. Uh, the same yeah. love of nation that uh, Putin has for Russia, the greater Russia, this vision of this great empire, uh, I believe Ukraine does as well. They're, not every nation, you know, there's levels to this game, and Ukrainian yeah. people are some of the proudest people uh-huh. yeah. uh, throughout the history of the 20th century, throughout the history of Earth. The Polish people are proud people. You can just see in World War II, the people who said, fuck you, <laughs> you're not having this, we will die to the last man. Those, there, there's different cultures that kind of really hold their ground, and Ukrainian yeah. people are that. You know, I, I have to admit, in that respect, I'm a, uh, I'm a bit of a coward. I, I could not do what Zelensky has been doing. Uh, I, uh, um, I would sort of try try to find a way to carve out uh, something that I I can live with. However, if it, if that force, that evil force, goes gets to my family. Right, there's I, lines. I, I bec- yes, that's that's right. You <laughs> you become the world's bravest man if somebody crosses oh, yeah. that line. Oh yeah. You mentioned something about you've not been to Moscow back, uh, and that you it might not be safe for you to travel there. Yes. Um, can you speak to the nature of that? You know, as somebody somebody that successfully got out of the KGB, how are you still alive? A number of reasons. Um, first of all, um, 
when my story became public, that was six years ago, I was pretty old, right? And so uh, the folks that uh, may have a personal interest or may have had a personal interest in doing me harm, most of them don't live anymore, (laughs) all right? That's number one. Number two, I I did not... uh, I, w- I wasn't a hired hand, a German. I did not betray the motherland. Now, that's a crime that is uh, punished by death. You betray the motherland. That's uh, and um, and and the other thing is, um, if there is a, you, you know, that these kinds of operations to assassination on a. a in another country are very difficult to plan and, and implement. And if there's a list of people that uh, they don't like, I may not be at the very top. Having said that, you know, if, you, if I wind up, say, in Moscow or even in countries like Turkey where there's a lot of law, lawlessness, you know, accidents can easily be uh, arranged. And that's just sending another message. You know, it's like, you know, we... we, we we can do a lot of things. So powerful. Yes. Do you think it's safe for me to travel in Russia and Ukraine? Uh, I think you uh, you know very well how to communicate in both countries. You know, you you've shown this in this interaction that uh, uh, you have a lot of empathy for the people you'll be talking with, and empathy means good understanding where they're coming from, and that there are lines that you can't cross. Yeah, like the question that I was going to ask Zelensky, you not going to ask. Good for you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, is, isn't that the funny thing about this world? There's lines. There's lines everywhere. Even in love, even in personal relationships, there's lines you should not cross. Yeah. How did you finally get caught? I resigned in 1988. So well, I, let's actually talk about that. There was a okay. Yeah, resigned. There's there's warning signs. Yeah, yeah. There's okay. another yet another choice. Yet another crossroads. Yes. Okay. What was the calculation? What was the choice to be made? To um, give a little background, uh, it was it was 1988, and I I was I thought they would my my uh, my time in the U.S. would soon end because you know I thought 10 to 12 years it was already past 10 years. There was no indication that they that they indicated you know that they said you know you know we're done you're done. But in December of 1988, I got this one one thing that I never wanted to see. So we had a, a system of signals that uh, uh, either uh, one of those diplomat agents could set at a spot that I go, pass by every day, or I could set where they would pass by, uh, like on their way from where they live to the United Nations, for instance, and would just drive. So, and, and mine was, uh, my, my, the signal spot uh, for me was on a, on a support beam for the elevated A train in, in Queens. And it was uh, morning in December that I walked by there and routinely looked at it and I never expected anything. And there was this red dot, it was about the size of my fist with a, you know, red paint. And, uh, and I, since you have done it already, I can. I think I can curse in this uh, moment because it's the only way I can really indicate how I felt. I said, "Oh shit!" <laughs> because that was the danger signal. Yes. There was like 
you must, you are in severe danger of, uh, and you, you, you need to get out of the country as soon as possible. There was a, uh, a protocol that I was supposed to follow. I wasn't even supposed to go home. I just needed to, was supposed to get my, my reserve documents that I had uh, uh, hidden in, uh, in a park in, in the Bronx and made, make a beeline to, to, to the Canadian border. I wasn't ready. So I just like ignored this thing. I mean, I did. I couldn't ignore it, but I went on to work. Got on the A train, get, went to work, and then uh, went to my cubicle and stared at the computer screen all day because I couldn't think. I could think only about what to do, what to do, what to do. The reason for this in, indecisiveness was that uh, I was a father at the time. I was uh, my my little girl by the name of Chelsea was eighteen months old, and I was there when she was born. I took her to uh, to her the home. I watched her grow up. Uh, I watched her take the first steps and always look at me with these big eyes, lovingly look at me. And uh, that is when I started my re-entry into the human race because I just fell in love with this girl. That's when love came back, and it was completely unexpected. And uh, there's a lot of fathers who understand, and you, particularly fathers of girls, who, who understand what happened there. And I still thought I need to go back because you know there was there was probably some danger, but I hadn't figured out how to take care of the girl. You know. I, Leave her, but you know maybe she she need to she she need to have a good life and grow up and and have a chance. And uh, her mother had a she was from South America. She had a fourth grade education that would have not worked very well. So I played for time. I obviously I could be sick. I couldn't you know I I could be in a hospital. There was a precedent where I was sick where I couldn't communicate for about three weeks. So I just uh, did nothing. Um, that was on a Monday. On a Thursday was my regular uh, uh, shortwave transmission. I listened, and they explained a little in, 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 in a few sentences. We have reason to believe that the FBI is on your case. You need to uh, execute the emergency procedure. Uh, come home right away. Uh, I still had some time because the radio could be broken or the uh, the transmission was bad or I still could be in a hospital, right? So uh, I gave myself some more time. And then something happened where they forced my hand. This is the only time that a, a Soviet agent was anywhere near me on the territory of the United States. So I'm waiting for the A train on, on a on a dark morning still in uh, in Queens, and uh, there's this uh, man, the short man in a black trench coat, comes up to me from my right, and he whispers into my ears, "You gotta come back, or else you're dead." I can't imitate the Russian accent. There was a Russian accent, so now. And it was a pretty strong accent. The "you're dead" phrase can have two meanings, and an American would have said, "Or else you're busted," 
or mm-hmm. or else you get arrested or else you're dead is very strong mm-hmm. so now you have to have to take it seriously to some degree because i know that uh they didn't uh, they had a history of um, assassinating or at least trying to assassinate defectors so uh, that that obviously raised the the stakes a little bit uh but i i i just talked myself into believing this was just uh, a, a bad phrasing yeah. and uh, but at this point i knew and they knew that we both knew right so there was no more guessing. He he found me. He talked to me. I know. So now I had to act. So in in the next radiogram, I was uh, asked uh, for uh, to uh, uh, execute a dead drop operation where they would give me money and uh, a passport. Uh, and that was in a park in on Staten Island. It was a location that I found and I described. And, and I was always uh, uh, praised for m- my my ability to describe spots that are easy to find. Mm. So that was that was a given. So, and the only thing that was different in this for this operation, they they st- scheduled it for the dark. All right. So, but it was still no problem because it, it was in a park and in a, a couple of um, about. Uh, a hundred yards in, uh, by uh, next to a, a, a fallen tree, it, it would be hard to miss. So I go to Staten Island. And I read the signal that uh, said uh, I I put the container in the drop. That that was the protocol. There's a the signal that the person who, uh, who who hands over or something put, puts at a at a spot not too far from the spot itself. That means. I would go in and just pick it up. The reason I actually uh, uh, went to pick up this this container because there was money in it, so I didn't have to make a decision yet. Okay, I could throw away the passport. I it was like I was still trying to figure out what to do, what to do, what to do. So I get to the spot, I get to the tree, uh, and I, I, had, I had a flashlight with me. The, the park, there was nobody in the park. It was Even during the day, there, this park was not, uh, it was more almost like a little forest. Um, and uh, I don't see the container. It was supposed to be a, a crushed oil can, pretty sizable, not hard to miss. And I do a double take, and I look again, and I look around, and I look around a little more, see if they misplaced it. I can't find it. That's the only one that one of those operations failed. And that just doesn't make a lot of sense. So when as I'm walking away from this, like sort of numb emotionally, I said to myself, I'm staying. <laughs> yeah, that decision some kind of signal, some kind of a muse just spoke to you. That decision was made for me. Now you know that I'm a Christian now, and I think that was like God told me this. Mm-hmm. You know, <laughs> but it was certain there. It was right there. It was that, that was it. That was it. That was it. And uh, so what I did uh, uh, to uh, well, first of all, I. I Divine inter- intervention helped me to find a find a good e- explanation. I sent him my last letter and with secret writing. I uh, um, I communicated to them. I said I, I I wish I could come, but I can't because I have uh, 
contracted HIV-AIDS. That was the best lie ever, because you, nobody wanted to have AIDS in their country. In those days, it was a death sentence, right? Yes. And I knew, I had, we had conversations when I was back in Moscow, how they were snickering about what's going on in the United States, you know, that, mm-hmm. that, that depraved culture, and you see, and then they're, they're killing each other. And the depraved culture took you took over your being and yes. how you're saying. No, and 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 I was and, and I was convincing enough. I e- even traced it back to a girlfriend I had once that I had actually reported on that she, you know, I I interacted with this lady who had a boyfriend at one point uh, who was a drug addict, and she was infected, and she infected me. So. They believed it. They sent, uh, and I, I asked them to give my my dollar savings to my German family. Uh, they gave them some, but they <laughs> they they told they told my family that I already passed away, that I'm dead. They believed it, a hundred percent. And I guess the agent who took the money took half of it for himself. <laughs> so that was it. And uh, the the next three months, I made sure that I wasn't. Uh, reliably at the same spot in the same time frame. So I went to work in different paths at different times just to, you know, just a safety measure, so to speak, and not not, not huge, uh, but, you know, it, it, just, uh, it, it, it kept me, kept my, allowed me to keep my sanity. Uh, and and obviously after I sent the letter, I I threw the shortwave radio in the Hudson River, destroyed the one-time pads that I still had. So I was now uh, ready to uh, for a new life for a new life and live out my life as an American, undiscovered. Uh, but you know, starting to work on my version of the American dream. And uh, the first action was, was I was telling my wife, the mother of this child, you know, she always wanted to have a house and said, you know what, we should buy a house. (laughs) (laughs) And a year later, we moved into the suburbs. And then I said, we should have another child. And we had another child. So, and I had a career where I did pretty well. Uh, I moved couple of times, wound up in a McMansion. But before that, my second house was actually in Pennsylvania, in rural Pennsylvania. And this is uh, where uh, I was discovered by the FBI. And how did they know about me? Uh, I, if, if, it, if it hadn't been for this defector, Vasily Mitrokin, who was an archivist in, in the KGB archives, he was actually pretty high level. He was in charge of the relocation of the archive uh, from uh, Lubyanka to Yasinovo. Um, and he really hated, the, he had reason to believe he hated the, the Soviet system. Uh, I, I think I remember that his son was quite ill and he could have gotten treatment in England and he was not allowed to, to uh, travel to England with his son. So... He, uh, his hatred, he, he, he tried to figure out what to do and how to do damage to that system. So he started copying notes, little, little, little slips of paper, handwritten that he smuggled out in his underwear and his socks over the years. And then he transcribed them with the typewriter and then put uh, the, 
the uh, pieces of paper uh, and into some kind of a container and and and, and buried this in a stature. It was, I believe, in nineteen ninety two when he showed up. That was already the the Soviet Union was gone. So he showed up at the U.S. Embassy in Moscow and told him what he had. And it was on a weekend, and apparently there was a junior person in charge. And he said, you know what? What you got, we are not interested in. It's really old. <laughs> uh, that's a career-limiting move, right? Uh, because the, uh, Vasily Mitrokin then uh, made his way to one of the Baltic republics and uh, contacted MI6. And they said... Come on in, old fellow. We'll have a <laughs> cup of tea. <laughs> and so they they managed to get this stuff out of the dacha and, uh, and get it to England. And eventually, uh, the MI, MI6 shared it with the FBI. And uh, there wasn't a whole lot of information about me. It was very, very little. It was like there's an, uh, a person by the name of Jack Barsky who is an illegal operating in the northeast of the United States. Now, if it was Jim Miller, they wouldn't have found me. Jack Barsky was easy to find. So uh, they, they checked Social Security, and Jack Barsky was, uh, uh, had gotten his, um, his Social Security card at the age of 33. Bingo, okay? The, all they knew, though, was that I wasn't illegal, that I was still living there. They didn't know whether I was active, inactive, uh, they and the other thing that they knew uh, that I was a really really well trained agent because I was still there, right? <laughs> so um, they took uh, I think almost three years to investigate me, watch me from a distance because you know if I was still active, I would would have found out that somebody's investigating me. So you started being less and less active in terms of... Uh, oh, I stopped completely. No, uh, what I mean is... Oh, oh uh, surveillance detection. Uh, yes, the surveillance detection. Just after three careful. months, I, I stopped altogether. Okay. Yeah, good point. And FBI is still <clears throat> very careful. They were very careful. They they pretty much watched me. And and, and at one point, uh, I, I had a house in the country with one neighbor. At one point, uh, that house was for sale, so the FBI bought it. And they put a couple of agents there and, and just to keep a closer eye on me. Uh, there was no indication that uh, I was still active, but they were still cautious. And uh, but at one point, they uh, they were able to plant a bug in my kitchen, a listening device. And uh, I. My wife and I didn't get along very well. You know, there was a lot of friction, and she was constantly complaining about things. And, you know, I got sick and tired of it. And one day we had an argument in the kitchen, and uh, I, I chose to deploy the nuclear option. <laughs> and that is, that is telling her what I sacrificed to be with her to, uh, so she would understand that I am there f on her side. Yeah. I'm supporting her. If something doesn't quite fit, it is not because I don't love the both of them, yeah. Chelsea and, and Penelope. So I, when I said that, the listening device was active, so the FBI was hearing my confession. <laughs> I was once a KGB agent, blah, 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 and, uh, and I quit because... Uh, then because of... Uh, and then stayed, stayed here because of you and Tr uh, Chelsea. And... Um, that also 
made it clear to the FBI that I wasn't active anymore. So they had both of that. So now uh, they knew uh, an attempt to turn me would have been useless because you know, because you know, you turn somebody who's active. But they figured they had mm, there was enough reason to treat me nicely because uh, they figured that I had a lot of information that was as as aged as it was, but it was still important for the FBI to get to know. And so one day, uh, it was a, a Friday evening, I, I, uh, I'm driving back home from the office and I'm being stopped by a, um, a state uh, uh, State state police. Uh, as I'm going through the toll, uh, it's a bridge over the Hudson, and they had to pay a toll. And he waved me. He he got me right where I stopped, and he said, "Could you please uh, move over here? It's a routine traffic stop." And I thought nothing of it. I I had forgotten at that point that I once was a spy. You know, it was like <laughs> this was gone. And uh, and then he said, "Could you steep, please step out of the car?" That should have uh, aroused my suspicion. That's unusual, right? Routine yeah. traffic stop. Uh, yeah, I did it, no problem. And then uh, again, somebody came from the right, came <laughs> uh, into my view, and he flipped this uh, ID and he said, "FBI, we would like to have a talk with you." Now this is uh, my now friend Joe Riley, who who actually is uh, the uh, He's the godfather of my of Trinity and my last child. But anyway, uh, he told me later that uh, when when I heard that phrase, all the blood left my face. I became totally white. Uh, but I recovered very quickly, and he said it himself. So uh, you know, he they took me to a vehicle, and uh, there was an, another agent in, uh, in the vehicle, and he had a gun strapped to his ankle, so that was pretty real. <laughs> First question I had, so am I under arrest? And the answer was no. And then my instinct kicked in uh, and my ability to, to operate in uh, very well under high-pressure situations. And I asked him, so what took you so long? You know, the intent of that was to... Um, to uh, de defuse any kind of tension. Yes. And I saw a smile. <laughs> yeah. Instant friends. Uh, yeah, <laughs> well, I, I knew I knew that uh, I had to make them like me. And I'm, uh, I think by now I know I'm a pretty pretty likable person. So yeah, I would say so. <laughs> so so uh, and I uh, when when they took me to a motel which they had rented, uh, there was an and, and the two two uh, wings at a right angle. They they had one. They bought all the rooms in one wing, and they had a guard at each end of uh, that wing. And they took me in the middle. And uh, there were some props there, some binders with labels. And I, I immediately thought, you know, this is pretty silly because what what I no what I noticed that the the labels all referred back to my early years, I knew that they didn't know much else. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so um, I told Joe that afterwards, and that, that was not a great idea. But anyway, <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
Uh, but but I volunteered. I made the following statement before we even started the the uh, interview. I said, I know there's only one way for me to and my family to have a chance to get through here without much damages if I'm if I'm completely 100% cooperative, and it is my intent to do that, exactly that. All right, so we, we spent about two hours in the interview. They allowed me to call my wife, tell her that I'm going to be late. That, that indicated to me already that they would let me go. And after two hours, they let me go. Um, but they had the area covered with a whole bunch of people. And the head of that that team talked to me and he said, if you think of running, we got every intersection in this area covered. You can't. I didn't say anything, but, you know, I had no no thought of running. <laughs> so, and that was the beginning of uh, another phase of my life where I was cooperating with the FBI for quite a while and living still undercover for several years until I had real good documentation and became an American citizen uh, seven years ago. Uh, today, seven years ago. So it was recently. Uh, yeah. Wow. Quite recent. It, the bureaucracy took a long time to figure out how to how to make me real and uh, and also not put me in 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 these witness protection program. You know, to keep my name and then just you know make everything like official. So, for instance, I had to change my birth year uh, simply because if I, I Jack Barsky was born in 1944, if I kept 1944, the FBI would have helped me commit a crime because I would have, uh, uh collected social security of, uh, four years sooner. Right. <laughs> so, and anyway, uh, details of that. Name, yes, yes. It, 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 it took quite a while. And when, when I finally got the call from, uh, the office, uh, of Homeland Security, uh, since, uh, uh, the lady says, uh, this is agent so-and-so uh, uh, from Homeland Security. Can you come into the office tomorrow? And uh, I said, um, let me look at my calendar. And then I said, oh, wait a minute, what, what am I talking about? What time do you want me to be there? Because I had waited for that moment for a long time, and uh, I was sworn in right then and there. Uh, it was a good feeling to walk out of there because I, I had a country again. You know, and I love this country just as much as you said you love it, uh, with all its warts and its problems that we're going through right now. Um, and then the last thing that changed my life again, and I don't want to get into details because it's a little complicated story. I never wanted to be a public person. Uh, and then I was discovered through a number of uh, uh, dots that were unlikely to be connected, it had to do with a relative, with with a half brother of my wife, who lives in Germany, uh, was taken to uh, to Germany with, by his mother, who came to visit somebody, not us, but that somebody that he came to visit uh, lived fifty miles from our house, and that my my wife and and this half brother never never met in person before. They knew about each other through social media. And when he found out my background, he he was a, a conductor of the German Railroad at the time. He said, oh, this is a big story. That's going to be big, big, big. And said, yeah, <laughs> okay. Well, he happened to know this one person who happened happened to know uh, uh, one of the star reporters of Der Spiegel. Hmm. 
And uh, after she did some research and determined that I was real, she was on my case. And she happened to know uh, Steve Croft, the guy, uh, guy from 60 Minutes. You see all these connections? I had nothing to do with it. That's how life works. Dots get connected yes. somehow, sometimes. <laughs> Yeah, most of us it doesn't. Stuff happens. You get, stuff happens. You get lucky. You you don't know You've gotten what, what's lucky happening. a few times in your life. Uh, yeah, I think I'm, I'm must be part <laughs> Irish too. <laughs> yeah, so uh, it's uh, it's been it's been an interesting ride. Um, I'm just uh, still shaking my head about all the stuff that happened. Oh, it's been a fun one. What well, you wrote. Uh... Because I'm allowed to leave behind a documented legacy of my unusual life, yeah. I'm praying that the legacy will be described by a single word, love. So let us return to the thing we started the conversation yeah. with, which is love. Yeah. What role does love play in this human condition, in your life and in, yeah. in our life here together? I I give you an answer uh, by telling you what happened one day. I I gave a presentation at Microsoft headquarters. <laughs> <laughs> that's a strange beginning of a love story, but yes. <laughs> uh, no, that's not a love story. And then so there's this there's this young this beautiful young lady sitting in the back, and she's she's paying a lot of attention. Uh, found out later that uh, her, her her job at Microsoft, the job job title was storyteller. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's soft marketing, right? It's, uh, and, <laughs> yeah, but, you could say that. Yeah. yeah, but but that's if you can't afford somebody like that, that's that's good. Yeah. Anyway, she uh, uh, question and answer. She raised her hand and she asked me. So all the things that you have done and you have experienced, uh, what's the the number one lesson you've taken away from from your life? That was a new question for me. I've never, never been asked that question. And I, I thought about about it for 20 seconds, and then I came up with this, uh, this phrase that we all know, love conquers all, because in my life it did, in the end. And, uh, uh, and it's, uh, it's the strongest human emotion, and that is what makes us human, really. And yep. you spoke about the... I mean, offline, as I've, I've spoken with you, it's it's clear to me how transformative, how powerful the life of your children are, your your daughters yeah. in your yeah. life, and who you are, and and why you think life is beautiful, and why you think this country is beautiful. Now that um, that I'm pretty mature, <laughs> to put it mildly, uh, I'm I'm also more loving towards many more people. You know, these things like uh, random acts of kindness for strangers, I do them. I'm looking for them now. And you know what? It's good for me. <laughs> well, welcome to Texas, because this <laughs> random kind acts of kindness to strangers seems to be a way of life, which is one of the reasons I love it here. Um, it just reminds me why I love human beings, which is that they, there's just this warmth, this connection. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, and, and Georgia is the same thing. Yeah. <laughs> Amen. Um, do you have any regrets? Do you, yeah. looking back at life, do you wish you've done something different? Well, I, I, I could have, but I then I would have had a, would have a different regret. Yeah. I, I betrayed the wife, the German wife that I loved. I really did love her, and I betrayed her, 
but if I don't betray her, then I I betray the child. That is a source of so much love for you now. So maybe life is a kind of, um, you get to choose your regrets. <laughs> you don't yeah, get to it's avoid a little, them. It's a, it's a little bit um, of a strange way of putting it, but I, there's no other choice. Uh, and I, I tell you what, what I don't regret, and and that's uh, that may be, you probably understand it now because you have enough background about me. I don't regret having lied to my mother because I had no really strong emotional relationship with her. She took care of me. She was proud of me, but we didn't hug. We didn't. We didn't interact emotionally whatsoever. So you don't feel like you betrayed that a uh, love that that. Uh, well, I, I did. I know that. I know that uh, she uh, she was looking for me uh, until she day the day she died. She she wrote a letter to President Gorbachev, asking him for help to locate me. Uh, she uh, she uh, checked with the Stasi. She just was uh, like. Uh, Hell bent on finding me and couldn't find me, so she passed away without knowing what happened to me. Now there was this uh, this rumor that uh, was flying around, and she possibly may have bought into that rumor because my cover for uh, when I went to the United States was that I uh, changed ca careers again and I joined. Uh, a um, uh, an institution in Kazakhstan that did uh, space research, Intercosmos something something, uh, and I had a I had a, a piece of paper that that uh, invited me to start there, and it was the it was a forgery. Intercosmos didn't it never existed, but but people knew that in Kazakhstan there were super secret uh, in, uh, facilities. So and some one of my classmates, old classmates from high school started the rumor that I, I uh, died in a rocket accident. And everybody knew that. So when I came back to Germany, went back to Germany, uh, I found the telephone number of this girl that had dumped me. I called her. And I said, I said to her, so, so guess who this is? But it's, maybe you hold on to your chair. She says, yes. I said, this is Albrecht. It's a good payback. <laughs> <laughs> no, we actually met. So there's two elderly people in their 60s uh, who meet each other after so many years. And uh, the one that ended the relationship started the conversation by saying, you know what? I made a really bad mistake. And and the tears came down her cheeks. Yeah. I wasn't asking for that. I wasn't. I wasn't happy about it. But it did feel good. Now, now uh, uh, a while later, uh, I knew why she th said she made a mistake. I met her husband. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's a uh, there's, there's a, a Tom Waits has a song called Martha, where he made uh, where an older gentleman calls somebody he used to love and they have a conversation. They're both married now. And it's, sometimes you can uh, meet people from your past and it gives you a glimpse of a possible different life you could have had. Oh yeah, uh, and you know, I was actually, when she said I made a mistake and I was thinking, 
thought to myself, no, you didn't. There was none. There was nothing left. There was nothing left. Uh, and also the person that you became, uh, personality-wise, wasn't as as attractive as, as I remembered her. You know, it's puppy love, you know. But it's still love. It's yeah, still, it, oh, it was. Happened. It, 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 still, it was still, passionate yeah. love for sure. And uh, <laughs> I, I would have, uh, I would have thrown myself under the bus if I could save her. I, it was that strong, and it's just as strong as the love for my two girls. Yeah. Life is full of moments and periods like that of love, and that—that's what makes life so so freaking awesome. Yeah. But it does come to an end. <laughs> And so does this conversation, I guess. <laughs> no, this goes on for many more hours. But yes, uh, do you think about your own death? Huh? Do you think about death? Do you think about your own death? Yes. Are you afraid of it? Yes. Even though I'm a Christian. Uh, As a Christian, do you have a sense of what's coming after, or is it full of uncertainty? I have a hope. <laughs> I have a hope. Uh, you know. Um, there, there's a lot of um, there's a lot of Christianity which is quite logical, a lot of Christianity which is also you know, you know the life of Christ has a lot of a lot of proof, uh, but you know, and I became a Christian uh, starting with a head, and 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 I was already quite old, and I. Uh, uh, you know, when you don't when you don't get this faith very early, uh, it, it's 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 tougher to buy into everything. You know, there are some there are some things that are difficult for me to understand and and believe. But but there's many many other things that I can't explain only with the existence of a God. But whether He lets us go again for in eternity. I just hope I won't convince somebody else at this point, which is, doesn't make me a really, really good Christian because I'm supposed to evangelize. Mm -hmm. But there's still a fear. Yeah, there's a fear and a hope. Uh, on the other hand, uh, I know that uh, you see. See, this this is this is how I approach the the, la the last years of my life. Uh, I will not. I will not mentally or physically get decrepit. I will do everything I can do to be alert and fit. I still run. I run four or five times a week. And I'm going to start lifting weights again. Good. <laughs> so you stay physically and mentally sharp. Yes. Go out with guns blazing. That's, that's and, and I once read a book written by a, by a medical doctor. He said, most people are, and uh, when 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 they're becoming mature, that the the rest of their life is a slow downward move, and the, not for you. <laughs> no, the, the 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 last years are pretty bad. Yeah. He said, "You got to do this." Boom. <laughs> that's <laughs> that's pretty good advice from a doctor, um, and if nothing else from Christianity. Uh, whichever parts you take on, one of the big ones is love. Yes, and that's something you've lived and, from the very beginning, before. Yes, before God was part of your life, before anything was part of your life, it seemed that love was 
part of your life and has been a consistent thread throughout. Yes, sir. And uh, uh, there's, a, there's a short sentence in, in the Bible that says, God is love. And and the and oh the other thing is I want to say the, the Christian morality is is I'm, I I I can sign that with my blood. Okay. God is love. Amen. Jack, you're an incredible person. Have lived an incredible life. Thank you for talking today. Thank you for telling your story. Uh, thank you for being who you are, and thank you for being um, all about love. This is, a, this is a beautiful conversation. It was an honor. Thank you yeah, for talking Yeah, and I uh, appreciate the tough questions that you asked. Thanks for listening to this conversation with Jack Barsky. To support this podcast, please check out our sponsors in the description. And now, let me leave you with some words from Edward Snowden. You can't come up against the world's most powerful intelligence agencies and not accept the risk. If they want to get you, over time, they will. Thank you for listening and hope to see you next time.